I'm Aaron Armstrong. I'm Pete Moran. And we love to watch. We love to watch says, The oldest and strongest emotion of mankind is Emotion by Carly Rae Jepsen. And the strongest track on that album is Run Away With Me. run away with me oh yeah absolutely mm, i mean emotion's pretty good great album that's what i just said it's a strong no, i know emotion. but like this the song emotion <laughs> on the album oh, oh. <laughs> is we, pretty good this is this is a great who's on first because no one wants to hear two 30 something guys um no the about- emotion the song <laughs> yeah i get it the album emotion uh i'd put boy problems up there too it's a good one. It's a good track. It's been a while since it. Yeah. Uh, so what are, yeah, what what are, are we doing here? Pretty good. What do you like? What do you think about the B tracks? <laughs> B tracks in the year two thousand and fifteen. B sides. I mean, sometimes they're just called Spotify extras now. Oh, I don't know if I've listened to those. I'm just trying to make it very clear what kind of episode this is going to be. Uh, <laughs> but I'm Aaron Armstrong again. Oh wait, that's not how I start this. I already did that part, Peter. What's happening to me? <laughs> I, I, I talked about Carly Rae Jepsen and I shorted your brain. I guess, you know, sometimes when you've looped something so many times, you can change minor things. Because our loops are uh, three hours to four hours long, not five seconds. But yeah, where we love to watch our movie podcast, we pick a theme. We do movies over the course of that month around that theme. And if we remember, we compare and contrast. And we're in our last week of It's Groundhog Day again again uh month where we are doing time loop movies we had a great time doing it in 2020 uh, just a fantastic time the world february 2020 <laughs> the whole world was our oyster we could we could go places like stores and, and go to libraries and sometimes if we saw met someone we'd never met before we just we said hi i'm aaron and we shook their hands you know, maybe sometimes we gave high fives to people. And now uh, I just sometimes just, you know, sh- you leave them sh- hanging. I leave I, I leave everyone hanging. My our, my life is hanging, Peter. <laughs> Everything's hanging. Hanging low, if you know what I mean. You're getting older and your balls are dangling more. Yeah, they're going to be past my penis any days. <laughs> you should switch from boxers to briefs. It helps with that. I heard. 
<laughs> I mean, I'm just making. I'm not that old. <laughs> <laughs> but great, great, great uh, wreck, as we call it, which is called a wreck, which is short for recommendation. <laughs> I just like to give practical advice, my man. Uh, yeah, I mean, that's probably great if you got a tiny penis and need it really snug in there. Um, <laughs> you know. I like to give it a little hug. I like to give my, my tiny penis a hug. <laughs> oh, sorry. Just uh, feeling uh, feeling emotionally supported by my boxer or brief, briefs. I, yeah, I wear boxer briefs. T- oh, yeah, those are good, too. So I'm like uh, a briefs wearer, but like a little sexier. <laughs> yeah, a little sexier. <laughs> yeah. Like not too a, much sexier. Just, uh, just a little, like, you, you know, in cooking, there's, like, tablespoon, half a tablespoon, teaspoon, half a teaspoon, quarter teaspoon, and then, I'm like, familiar a with volumes. Yeah, and then a pinch. Just a pinch. Just a pinch. Just a pinch sexier. In this, in this case. Much smaller than the other ones, is what I'm saying. But, yeah, we're doing we're our last week of Groundhog Day Month, as I just said, which is perfect for Groundhog Day Month. And... We're doing a double feature uh, that we almost put in our Lovecraft month. Although now having watched rewatched both of these movies for the first time since they essentially they both came out, so one in 2012, 2013, and one in 2017, 2018. And I say those because I can't quite remember the year, and all of these independent movies have weird release dates. Yeah, so we were originally going to do this for or we talked about doing it for Lovecraft month after rewatching for the first time since the movies came out. I'm glad we did them for for time loop month. There is definitely, especially with with both of these, there is a a big Lovecraft vibe uh, for kind of the Elder God or the thing, but it's also kind of a weird like multimedia god. And really, the part that ends up playing, I think, a bigger role than the Lovecraftian stuff is the time loop loop mechanics which in the first it's movie it's like 6040 gonna... like it's it's definitely still a lovecraft month i consider yeah. this our, our cheat way of getting what 6 and 7 uh, lovecraft movies in this this year yeah um, i know it hurts 5 when, in when, january when, but when someone like 6040 that things are slightly something else as opposed to lovecraft peter but i assure you that's not to disparage the Lovecraftian parts of this movie. It's just to note that it feels more... It's time- more timey-wimey. More timey-wimey. And especially what's interesting about the first movie, uh, which is Resolution, uh, which we'll, we'll talk about. We're doing... I don't know if we said it. We're doing Resolution and the Endless by uh, Aaron Moorhead and Justin Benson, two filmmakers who Peter and I love quite a bit. And we covered their sophomore feature, Spring... Uh, which is very Lovecraftian, a Lovecraftian monster love story, uh, which came out uh, in 2015. I think we did that, I think, either in 2017 or 2018. It's hard to hard to keep track. But uh, that is still my favorite movie that they've done and probably one of my hundred favorite movies of all time. But the experience, you know, originally we were talking about The Endless is the, is the more Lovecraftian. It's the more timey-wimey one. And we were talking about just doing that. And my memory of Resolution... Uh, was it was a fun debut feature with some cool stuff, and that later on the endless uh, references it a little. I think maybe maybe that's a good place to start. So the endless was just their third movie, and I didn't realize that it had a connection to their first feature until about there's a there's a big part when you're watching the endless that if you've seen Resolution, you're probably like, oh shit, I remember, I recognize this this scene and. 
these people. And I thought it was not quite an Easter egg, but connecting along with um, along with the two main characters, the endless showing up for like, you know, seconds in resolution, just kind of connecting the worlds and almost like a, a weird independent horror filmmakers, uh, Marvel cinematic universe type thing. But watching these back to back as opposed to four years separated, Peter, holy shit, like both of these movies went up in my estimation I did not realize how much watching Resolution and then watching The Endless that you realize how connected they are, how The Endless really totally changes uh, and recontextualizes Resolution. It adds um, a a resolution. (laughs) Shit. That was was an accidental pun. (laughs) (laughs) A resolution in some ways to a story that – Ended very abruptly in the in the in the original feature. Um, it is I've never really seen anything like this, where it essentially takes an entire movie that we watch that works well on its own, and basically supplants it as a portion of another bigger movie. Yeah, it doesn't quite. <laughs> it's funny because it, it doesn't quite match uh, any version of a sequel I've seen before. Yeah, where it feels like they're just. They're two halves of the same coin, but they both spend as currency. Um, it doesn't feel like the sequel couldn't exist on its own. In fact, we have some friends who watched The Endless and we're like, wait, you're saying there's a movie just about those two weirdos in the woods? Like, yes. Um, but however, like you watch them and once you've got you've put in the little bit of detective work on the second watch um, and seen them close enough together they feel like they are interlocked in a way that now I can't, that I, I find them inseparable. Yeah. Like I, I find them now inseparable. Like, I don't know if I'll ever watch them separately ever again. Uh, now that like I've emotionally connected the two. Uh, yeah, I, yeah, they really feel like, I don't, I don't know what, as you're thinking, I'm trying to think of an analogy. I, I, I can say with almost unequivocally that I've just never seen two movies related to each other in this way. And I think that's why it's a little hard to describe because, uh, I mean, we'll get into it more detail as we actually get into the plot, but the endless kind of posits this, uh, landscape in this area. There's a bunch of pocket universes resetting on specific timelines in the service of like, a uh, a Lovecraftian multimedia God. And you find out that everything that you saw in, resolution was basically the first incarnation of the a seven day period in a bubble that would reset constantly after the moment our movie ended what's amazing is that it's very clear from both the interviews and everything else that like that was not what resolution was designed to do right resolution specifically was uh what from their perspective it was a chance to make an indie horror movie that poked fun at some of the the tropes of indie horror while having like this crazy going in some crazy directions that they didn't see from a lot of movies they actually it's we'll get into more detail they it's about like this person who's forced to detox for seven days that was added just as a way to do all these crate to take the story in crazy ways because they didn't know how to keep everyone in one one location like it adds structure right it adds, it adds structure. like a, a set we're gonna be here for seven days and the sun goes why down, are we gonna be here for up. seven days why yeah. are we leaving it it answers questions and then it has this like kind of crazy ending and mysteries unanswered 
answered and stuff like that. And but, I think that can be very unsatisfying, I think, uh, if you haven't been playing, paying close attention. Um, or, you know, even a first time watch, you can, my first time watch, I was just, I was just sort of like, oh, and then I needed to go to Wikipedia kind of to like get the rest of the piece. And then I watched it again well before the endless came out. And I was like, okay, wait, this is actually really fucking good. It's a very impressive effort. Um, and yeah, like the first time I watched resolution, I was like, oh, that's, uh, that's, that's the ending. Oh, okay. See ya. I didn't watch it again, and I kind of got it. I mean, one of the things that's both, like, I don't want to say frustrating necessarily, but, like, if you watch enough indie movies, it doesn't even have to be a horror trope. Like, they basically end mid-scene, especially the stuff that started coming out post-2010s. I remember one day, like, 2013, 2014, I ended up watching, like, in one day, three or four of the biggest recommendations or the highest rated indie movies that had come out that year is like a catch up. And I, the reason that sticks in my head is that, well, I can't remember the movie specifically. All four of them ended in that same like character ending mid scene before you get to see what happens. Right. And it's like, yeah, I get like, not every movie needs to have a conclusion. Like it's life does go on. It's kind of slice of life, the Sopranos ending and stuff like that. But when you see four movies in a row all make the same move in different indie genres, it's like, oh, like, okay. Uh, and I feel like Resolution came out a time where it was where it did that a lot, where it's like, okay, yeah, the movie just ends. I get it. Doesn't mean I disliked it or liked it. It obviously has a lot of context by the movie itself and other things. And like, I got it. I I liked it. I really liked the actors. I liked the the low budget nature. There's some definitely some unsettling moments. Uh, but I didn't walk away, uh, I think, overly impressed. And then I saw Spring, and I was like, holy shit, this is – these guys are – you know, they stepped it up quite a bit in their second feature. So I was really excited for The Endless. Most times when people try to take a, a cohesive story that they have and craft another layer or sequel on it, it ends up being unsatisfied because the original property was never meant to go in those places, right? We see that in sequels all the time. Even when you plan a sequel, even when you plan a sequel – you know, how many movies do we get, like, the first of an, of a planned three-part movie and you roll your eyes because you're like, well, fucking nothing's going to happen in this first movie that, you know, with, ex- with some notable exceptions like a Lord of the Rings or something. It's super hard to make – to take a movie that was meant to be uh, just a movie and then to, to build on it or add on it in a satisfying way. And this movie not only – isn't quite doing that, but ultimately makes both movies better for it because there's a lot of, uh, and it also made Endless a more confusing watch for me, Peter. Like when I first watched Endless having been four years removed for resolution, I mentioned that there was like a part where I'm like, oh shit, holy cow, this is resolution. But now watching them back to back, I was like, holy shit, resolution is just fucking someone you know resolution came all over the endless and it's it's a mess it's everywhere and i oh, i think yeah. i think there were parts of the endless where i felt a little bit hard or i felt it a little hard especially in the middle part tracking who these people were supposed to be or if i was supposed to know them from somewhere and the answer is yeah you're supposed to know it from the endless or from resolution but what's interesting about it as a lovecraft product is that uh in the first movie uh they are stumbling around our pair a friend who's trying to help his friend uh get sober or at least get himself into into rehab um chains him in a cabin 
Uh, goes through some hoops to figure out what the hell is going on out in these woods. Also goes through some hoops to make sure that they can stay uh, safely in this cabin during this time because there's various issues going on. Um, mm-hmm. Regardless, uh, they go through an arc where they um, they patch up a lot of their relationship. They start to figure out some of the rules of this the, the looping. But this isn't a, a Palm Springs thing where uh, they're, they're, you know, trying to solve this like a math problem. This is like just them being like, I think this will work. Um, and in the end, they ultimately fail, um, which is very Lovecrafty. And the idea that uh, that these guys were meddling with something larger than them. And then the larger thing came and humbled them. Then in the sequel... Um, two periphery characters come in, uh, uh, two periphery characters from Resolution come in. They have their own adventure. It's actually a fairly more traditional movie. Um, but if you haven't seen Resolution, this is just a bunch of weirdos acting weird and dropping little lore hints about what this Lovecraftian deity is. And ultimately, all you know is that there's a ticking clock. When there's three full moons in the sky, they'll be locked in the time loop. Um, and if they don't get out in time, they don't get out in time. They managed to eke out a victory similar to the end of like Call of Cthulhu, um, where the boat crashes into Cthulhu and he pops and disappears and, you know, phase shifts out of existence for a bit. Um, but this, they didn't defeat the monster. They also don't totally understand the, the, the monster's, uh, motivations even. They, they know that it creates time loops. It creates stories. It creates time loops, which creates stories and, uh, it likes to see how people react in these stories. That's that's our best guess, is that it likes to put people into these situations like lab rats and then just watch them and watch them for its own entertainment. That's as best as we can suss. The, the thing never comes down and says, like, so here's what I was thinking. <laughs> and at the end of the movie, they escape. They get out. Th- it seems to be a happy ending for them. But like we also look back at the camp and those guys, everybody that was that was, uh, you know, stuck in the loop, they're still stuck in the loop. The thing didn't like lose lose. It's just that we grasped a little bit more of the mystery enough to win, but not so much of the mystery to win win, which I think is incredibly Lovecraftian. And it leaves a a lot of mystery on the table, especially if you haven't seen Resolution, because then all those weird periphery characters are just going to be weirdos dropping lore hints. I think for the most part, everyone gets what they want. So I think like the, the, the concept of not to, not to, um, actually you, but I do think the concept of, um, winning isn't the right way to, to look at it because like the people that stayed won, the people that left won, And in the weirdest thing ever, it's not totally true though. Some of the people stuck there are in a hell state. That's true. Fair point. Um, look, I know you like your hell states. I don't want to take that away. That's some, you're right, Peter. Some people, hell state. I I grew up. I grew up Catholic. Somebody needs to go to hell. I yeah. Look, I I get it. Yeah, I I think that's I think that's right. We'll get into more detail on that. I think the other thing is worth just calling out for how different this is. Is that you do exist in your bubble in your loop, which vary by sizes, vary by duration of like when the time loop resets. We'll get into how all that stuff is set, but also. And this is something I haven't seen in in any other time loop movie because they exist in like these almost like domes, <laughs> like tr- truly like your your bubble is a dome and how big your dome is depends on a lot of factors. A lot. Some of those factors we don't know all the answers to. People can enter your bubble um, and exist within your bubble. So 
people can, uh, like I said, like the main characters in Endless, when they basically wander into Resolution's bubble, they're talking to them and they're getting things from them and they're exchanging things. They can't leave their bubble, but other people can still enter and exit and exist uh, within the bubble and interact with it. And that's going to be very important for, I think, how how the Endless gets kind of... There, there were some things the first time I saw it that I didn't quite track with the videotape and how uh, Justin and Aaron got there in the first place and recognizing where the resets come in and where the bubble extends to. I feel like I do feel like I have a much firmer grip. I, the first time I left the endless, I was like, I get 85% of that. And I really love it. I think it was both on our best uh, movie of the years that we did. Yeah. It was in my top 10. Definitely. Um, Yeah. And, uh, but this time I feel like, with the exception of motivation, which you're not going to get from a Lovecraft deity, and you shouldn't get, I feel like I understand all of it. Like, I feel pretty locked into what happened in these movies um, at this point. Um, Peter, I think I think we're, we're already – it's really hard to even touch uh, – talk about generalities here just because – But I, I do want to – yeah, I, th- I know what you're saying. But I do want to – I do want to talk about the two directors before we move on to the crossover. But OK, so there's two dudes, uh, Aaron Moorhead and Justin Benson. Um, and they do something really cute in Resolution and the Endless where they use their first names and they're playing actual uh, – they're playing brothers. Um in, in the two movies. Um, but they're using, the directors are using their, their real uh, first names in it. Um, and they are buddies. They're writing buddies, directing buddies, and producing buddies. So I can run through their IMDb really quickly. Resolution was kind of their calling card, their first movie that got them attention. Uh, they wrote, directed, uh, produced it. They didn't star in it, um, though they do act, uh, obviously, in a cameo uh, appearance that we'll talk about. Uh, they had a segment in VHS Viral. Then they made Spring. We, ch- we talked about a bunch. Then they made The Endless. So The Endless is like weirdly like this was after they had built up some clout among horror filmmakers and they made yeah. some friends in the community. And uh, nobody, I think, expected this movie to be a sequel to... Nobody kind of knew what they were doing. If you read articles at the time, they were like, it's a big mystery box movie because that was kind of the the lingo um, that people were still using at the time. Um, And they have since since they've come into their own in the horror community, um, they've been interviewed a lot more. They've gotten Synchronic off the ground, which is their first movie with, I think, like Hollywood actors in it. Yeah, Anthony Mackie's in it. Yeah. Other people you've heard of. Yeah, and because they made buddies with... um, they made buddies with like Christian Gard, Christian Stella, and J- Jeremy Gardner. Um, they've uh, they co-produced After Midnight with them, um, which is like a horror movie that's gotten a bunch of acclaim. Uh, and they produced She Dies Tomorrow, um, the Amy Simet. So like they're kind of breaking it even into um, you know uh, they made buddies with that kind of uh, mumble gore group with the VHS viral, and they're kind of extending that um, into other projects, which are kind of cool. And now they're breaking through. They're going to direct the Moon Knight show for Marvel, um, which is weird. Um, good for them. I- I'll watch it just because it's them, but I'm not. I know people are like of my comic book friends who know more about I, more about comic books than I do. I feel like Moon Knight is one that people were really excited about. Yeah, I'm not like a super am Marvel I wrong? guy. I, I, Peter, yeah. am I wrong? <laughs> we can't do J voice. We've got too much to talk about tonight, Jay. I can't talk to you right is now. Is that Jay? I don't think that's Jay. Oh, I, I thought who you... that is. Am I wrong? 
Can I, well, how many more times? Sorry, you when you do, when you say it after I said J, it sounds more J. I th- think I uh, I annihilationed you. I got a little bit of J DNA in Am you. Am I wrong? <laughs> See, it's happening. <laughs> Am I wrong? <laughs> Um, I'm not super excited about it as a Marvel product. I'm super excited at, at, as a co-production of guys that I really like. Um, so let's talk about they met. They became buddies really quickly when they were working. Uh, they met um, in L.A. Uh, working for Ridley Scott's uh, production company, I believe, or in a Ridley Scott production. And essentially, um, I think Justin was leaving and Aaron was joining. And uh, they were like, and, and uh, you know, Justin was like, uh, or whoever was was leaving was like, yeah, this is a waste of time. Don't bother. Like this, this you're not going to get to meet Ridley. You're not going to learn anything about directing. Like, just go fucking. Let's make our own movie. After a little bit of time, they started writing uh, resolution, and they made resolution. Um, but uh, th- let's talk a little bit about the setting of these movies because they set it somewhere that uh, is not typical for movies, which is East County, San Diego. Uh, I moved from Chicago to San Diego a few years ago, and then I immediately, I didn't have any friends here, so I started hiking a lot, um, just to kind of, like, you know, see more of where I you moved. wanted to, like, find someone out in a secluded area who was alone that you could take back to your house, uh, against their will, for their will. What's, what's, what's the opposite? Yeah, for their will? Yeah, their for, will, for or, their will. Or for their will, and, you know. I think the word you're looking sure for is consensually, yeah, you got to make sure you guys become friends. Yeah, I was definitely looking for someone to abduct and, and become my friend. But uh, what, you, what what we discover going camping and going hiking out, out there is that it's a beautiful country, but a very strange country. Because people think about San Diego as this like uh, liberal town, but with a lot of money. So some conservative tendencies, right? And there's the military here, which makes it more conservative. East County is... Um, when the money drove a lot of people out of the, the cost of living in L.A. and San Diego uh, rose, um, it drove a lot of uh, hippies and uh, weirdos and um, people with drug problems um, out into inland California, and some of them became desert people. So it created this odd thing where, like, you can go out in the inner part of California and, like, you run into some real oddballs sometimes. Um it's well, hold on. Can, can I not to interrupt? You definitely know more about this than I do. But Peter, I am pretty sure the house we rented on the mountain that was decorated in all the animal skins <laughs> yes. uh, is in this exact area. And it definitely felt like I was uh, entering the most beautiful region of backwoods M- Mississippi uh, based on the signs uh, and a few other things. Uh, yes. But it was... Uh, I don't want it like it's where it's a podcast. Us describing what the house looked like is bad radio. Um, <laughs> it looked fucking nuts. It was insane. There was not an undecorated. Uh, there was not an undecorated patch of wall in it. The place was just filled to the brim with uh, animal skins and uh, fake guns or real guns that had had uh, you know cement in the barrel and like just it was just this insane. And we rented it for my bachelor party because I was like, I want everyone to fly out here. And, and once you get here, it'll be very cheap. We're going to go out. We're going to rent this crazy place that's like above the clouds in the mountain. Yeah. And it was gonna, beautiful. But we're going to drink for was. three days. But and then we didn't realize until we got there how fucking crazy it was. They, they do a good job of sh- not showing it in the pictures because we go into like nooks and crannies and there would be like a, a stuffed bobcat or some shit. You're like, huh, stuffed bobcat <laughs> like in this 
uh, in this in this weird part of the house. And it was just it was every room there was something that made you go, is this like some sort of like Russian mobsters from the 90s who own this and decorated but yeah that's that like it just it was a crazy it was just a crazy setup and i think like it's a it's a way people think about uh california i don't think that way um particularly mountain these sort of mountainous mountain deserts that are very beautiful but also um a lot of very developed culture out there and it's not all crazy people and i don't want to uh you know east county gets a bad name um but if you Google East County San, Die- San Diego and like the news section of Google, it's going to be all meth, all drug crime, all murders. Santee yeah. is also like there's also a lot of uh, white um, white supremacist stuff happening with uh, in like Santee. Um, and that's where there was like uh, a guy went to Ralph Servans with a KKK hood on and. Um, and there's a lot of gun culture out there, uh, including, you know, some ex-military people. And sometimes, uh, you know, I just think Republicans out here think they're behind enemy lines. So they <laughs> just lean into stereotypes. So it's weird that you get like these pockets. I of mean, this, that, like big talk from you, card carrying member of Antifa, the <laughs> organization that famously produces cards and gives them to their members. To mm. say I'm an Antifa, I actually print cards for Antifa. I love that. This is a tangent, but like, there is an organization filled with fucking nuts that gives different membership levels. They get a whole magazine. It's called the NRA. Yeah, <laughs> it's 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 Republican projection, right? Is that? Oh like, yeah. That th- it's always like, well, they're cheating because we're cheating. Uh, you're a lifetime member of Antifa. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like the the. Did that, you get like, your free Antifa jacket? <laughs> It's it's a little bit of horseshoe theory, and some of it is completely unintentional, right? Like, <laughs> yeah. like uh, Trump accusing people of cheating on their taxes, right? Um, <laughs> some, some of it's very, very funny, too. Like, yeah. You got a small penis, like I said earlier. <laughs> it's just a... It's, it's basically but here's the thing, a confession. Peter, I'm not Republican, so I'm incapable, of course, of doing a projection. <laughs> yeah, it's... it's uh, it, <laughs> Yeah, you're an honest, disgusting city lib. City lib. Big city lib. Not like a country lib. <laughs> I'm just a humble country lib. Where I come from, we don't drink almond milk because of the strain on California's water resources. We come from, we don't march in the streets because this. We haven't paved them yet. It's all gravel roads down this part. This town is actually unincorporated. All right. We're trying to get, you know, the local commune together and maybe, I don't know, maybe start like a like a nice little like true democracy and right, equal rights for all. But we can't be marching in the streets. <laughs> don't worry. My signs are biodegradable. Uh, my, my whole house. I built this from scratch. It's going to collapse and just get absorbed into the earth after I'm done because I want to make sure I, I, I leave the earth a little better than I found it. <laughs> but also, <laughs> don't take my guns. Well, well, well. We got ourselves a big city boy. Now make sure you tip your waitress. Oh, uh, well, well, well. Look at the big city boy come here. Uh what, what do you got? We got in that car. Gasoline? <laughs> <laughs> All right, that's 
You know how little, you know how much damage you're doing to the earth? All right. There's a lot of biodegradable fuel options that we're growing out here, bud. So, sorry, I'm just looking for a gas station. Ain't got one. Get an electric charge or get out. Look, if you're looking for a gas station, you might as well just head right up the road because you're really, you're really rubbing people the wrong way uh, with your uh, pollution. <laughs> hey, hey, the blue bin's for recycling. <laughs> you, here's what we need. Like, we need a lot of time. And we need to really create that uh, Alex Jones, but for good advice, call-in show. And then only make rural liberals call into it. (laughs) It's a lot of, like, (laughs) they're letting all genders into school. (laughs) Which is great, because there's a lot that exists, and it's not my job. And then someone calls them, like, yeah, well, we we had someone in the school who had one of those... uh, uh, one of those all lives matter flags, you know the ones from the people that really they say it because they're trying to emphasize that the lives that actually need support don't matter. <laughs> we said get out of the school. You know that doesn't make us prejudiced because uh, you can't discriminate against people who are discriminatory. You understand that, right? <laughs> <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. Because <laughs> that you know. Intolerance is great, but tolerated intolerance actually leads to more tolerance. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. Any other questions, caller? Yeah, uh, so I got a jar of peanut butter, and I know I'm not supposed to put it in the recycling without cleaning it out, but I'm just having the darndest time. You got any, got any uh, recommendations, Alex? Uh, yeah, have you tried spinning it? I heard the gravity. I did see it on TikTok. I haven't verified a lot of false information out there, but... Uh, <laughs> I heard that you can put Greek yogurt in it, and then you could just eat it out, and then you get some peanut butter in your yogurt. Oh, great suggestion, except for one thing. What are you going to do with that aluminum wrapper? Oh, shucks. You're right, Alex. Well, I do make my own Greek yogurt. Are you my one caller that calls from the island nation of Sardinia? (laughs) That's true, Alex. That's true. Sardinia is basically the deep south of (laughs) Greece. (laughs) <laughs> uh, so anyways um, East County San Diego uh, East County San Diego uh, full of weirdos as, and so it's this, it's this beautiful strange uh, place uh, particularly hiking out there and they shot it out there and there's also uh, there's big uh, swatches well not big should, should be much larger uh, sizable swatches of uh, Native American reservation land out there um, so there's, uh, sometimes conflicts with, uh, you know, the indigenous people that live there and have lived there for a long time or were relocated there in some cases. And now this is like all, all the land they've got, um, and tweakers and freaks and cultists and weirdos. And there's sometimes these weird conflicts that pop up where like tweakers will come into the casino and then the tribal, tribal elders will have to like figure out what the hell to, to do to get these like psychopaths off their property. Right. Um, so it's a, it's, it's just a, it's a, it's a way crazier, uh, tract of land than I think it gets credit for, but it's also serenely beautiful. And this movie has inspired Resolution and then, uh, more so The Endless, but, um, the, the seeds of it are here are inspired by Heaven's Gate, um, which, uh, they committed their, uh, final suicidal act, um, in San Diego County. 
<laughs> but yeah, they're 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 a large, and it had a deep imprint on. Um, it had a deep imprint on the the city, and even the when they were making this movie, and they decided to, um, when they're making uh, Resolution, and then when they were making Endless, they decided to model their group either uh, in opposition to or in con in comparison and in contrast to Heaven's Gate, um, because that is uh, it just left such an imprint on the surrounding community. And there's like a very interesting like subculture of cults in Southern California that arose out of the 60s, um, where yeah. like, uh, you know, <laughs> there's Charles Manson cults, but there's also like there's a diner here in San Diego County where um, that's clear that's run by the sort of like out, uh, esoteric, I think they might be like Buddhist inspired cults. Yeah. And they just make you like good sandwiches and then like kids go there to study because the food is cheap and the coffee is cheap uh so like there there's sometimes stuff like that that's like more innocuous and you might not even you might just like stop to get lunch at a diner and not even know that it's like owned by this like seemingly fairly placid cult but that's yeah i mean there's a there's a diner up here but it's basically just steve gutenberg wondering if he should get married with his buds um (laughs) But essentially, I'm t- I'm kind of rambling, hold on. But this is kind of all the this <laughs> you're is not all right, you're not rambling. This is all good. Uh, it's all, it's it was, all these strange elements influence. Look, what I was going to say something and, related and, to what you were saying. Just I'm oh, sorry. Go on. I know I said the joke first, but I was going somewhere that <laughs> was worthwhile somewhat. Uh, I will say that uh, watch. So I just watched the Heaven's Gate cult that's on HBO or HBO Max. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, four part like docu series, which I was actually Peter. You seem to be extremely familiar with it, at least from like a book or a podcast or something. But uh, I was the general vibe of the cult presented in the Endless really kind of matches, I think, uh, really well with uh, the Heaven's Gate cult. So that was definitely. A, I mean, they call it out in the movie, right? Like because they one of the characters says you're thinking we're all heaven's gate and stuff like that, which is like a very specific point, which I got the first time I saw it. But having watched that so recently to this movie, I also just get like tonally and the way they interact and the way they're trying to like project themselves to the world uh, really kind of matches the, the heaven's gate vibe uh, right up until the end, essentially. But yeah, but yeah, so the, um, but yeah, there's, there's a, there's re- re- comparisons, con- contrast to, and they're purposefully trying to subvert your expectations that this is a death cult in the second movie. Um, but, uh, yeah, the, the, um, I, th- I think that, I think that we're probably good in terms of laying the groundwork because we've got the geography, we've got the filmmakers, uh, and we've got, uh, and we've got a little bit of like, uh, why we're doing the movie. Well, you want to talk about the resolution proper? Yeah. Let's resolve this bad boy. Yeah. Let's get some resolution on this. So, Peter, uh, 
you're going to be alternate taglines for resolution. I'm going to do the recap. We're going to spend 20 minutes, like, just going through some specific beats on resolution. We'll probably talk more about it after we get through the endless. But just for you wackos that hate, that that listen to our podcast without watching the movies, um, I think it's important for us to have some separated discussion around uh, resolution or else you might be more lost than you already have been with this. So, uh, Peter, alternate taglines for resolution, go. Uh, <laughs> when a Native American tells you to get off his land, maybe listen. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that's uh, hashtag America. Uh, um, yeah, I think that's good. Um, <laughs> right, <for> sorry. <laughs> you know, there's little certified fresh uh, logos on DVDs and it makes me mad. Yeah. Uh, they just have a certified little dead dog logo. <laughs> certified dead dog <laughs> from Does the Dog Die? Just, just the the. Well, their logo is the dog with two X's on its eye. So <laughs> yeah, just that on the cover. <laughs> <laughs> that would be helpful. Uh, anyway, so resolution starts where uh, Mike is going to see his friend. Uh, is it Charlie? Why am I forgetting? Uh, Mike and Chris, right? Chris. So let me start that over. Yeah, Mike and Chris. The thing is, Mike is said after every sentence, and Chris is rarely said. Mike! 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 Uh, Yeah, I know. He's very easy to remember Mike. Uh, So uh, Mike is someone who you find out later has a... uh, Sorry, so he's going to visit his friend who he got a video message from that you see at the beginning. She's a videotape of this friend that he's known since he was a kid, just fucking drunk with a gun, hurts himself, and apparently also sent him like a map to this cabin out in East County. He is found out he's going to be a dad. His wife is two months uh, uh, along, and he decides like, hey, like... Uh, and this comes out a little bit later where he says it uh, in some really good moments with, with Chris. He's like, I felt like this is my one chance to make uh, make the world a little bit better for people before I kind of just focus on my shit. Which does happen when you have kids. Like, that first year, um, depending on the context that you know your friends, uh, you know, relationships change and dynamics shuffle. But that's especially true of your fucking possibly violent uh, meth head friend. <laughs> like, that person's getting cut out in the first uh, first year just because, you know, that is a dangerous uh, person to bring around. Chris mm-hmm. is... Um, is a drug addict. He uh, he kind of has had a rough deal growing up. And Mike was kind of from a I, clearly from East County, maybe a little bit of a poor group. It it feels like from his telling of it, he kind of got out of a situation that a lot of people that he knew didn't, and so he lost touch with a lot of people. But still, always considered Chris his best friend. Chris clearly is on like a meth spree. Um, and so Meth he gets dash there with, crack spree. Yeah, like, just what, they kept, I mean, they whatever. Kept switching back and forth between like whether he's doing crack or meth in a weird way. I think the idea is he's doing whatever he can get his hands on all the <laughs> or, time. Or they weren't that educated and they thought crack was a nickname for meth. Uh, Breaking Bad came out in 2009. I'm sure they were fine. Um, <laughs> <laughs> that, that was our entire country's education on crystal meth. Or if they like that one third eye blind song, then we turn life. Uh, so but not the radio version. No. Well, yeah, because then it was doing do the make him up until you break. <laughs> that wouldn't educate anyone. Except no, for maybe Missy You may want to Google it or Lycos it. <laughs> uh, so anyway, so uh, his plan is like, he's like, hey, how's it going, bud? 
he immediately handcuffs him to a radiator because he's like, you're not you've you've always refused to go to rehab. You're not going to get clean. I ha- I'm here for seven days. You're going to stay inside this. I'm going to watch you get clean. You have a mattress. You have a bucket. I'm going to get you food. And at the end of it, you can go to rehab. I hope you do. If not, whatever. So the first like half hour, 45 minutes of the movie is kind of that tension, like Chris kind of arguing with Mike, uh, drug addict stuff, right? Like, uh, I'm fine. Uh, and it's helped that Chris is played by a performer that seems very cogent throughout. Um, he's very funny. Um, one thing, let's just pause on here. Yeah, Chris, and, Chris and Mike are both, I think, very funny. And there's sort of a straight man, wild man comic dynamic to it. Yeah, like no one in here is like fucking uh worm boy or whatever from uh from train spotting, right? Like very cogent, very funny, good dynamic, uh Abbott and Costello almost type dynamic between mm-hmm. the two. Um which I don't think takes away from the movie necessarily. It doesn't give you the sense of someone who's like coming off of a years long crack crystal meth binge. Anyway, it's not important. Uh, I'm going to pause here just because, so the two actors in here are Vinnie Curran and uh, Celilia, or Celella, I believe, um, who play Mike and Chris. So this movie came out in 2012. I noted both of them as having very good performances, which sometimes, as Peter and I have talked about before, is the hardest thing to get right about a no-budget indie movie, especially one (laughs) like this. They give fantastic performances. I mean, uh, Vinnie Curran, who plays Chris's comic timing, is perfect. He has a warmth to him where it uh, you can see why Mike keeps getting bought in and, like, second-guessing himself or maybe has never gone this far in the past with trying to get his friend off drugs and help him out and stuff like that because he is he is the type of guy chris the type of guy that is a blast to have around when you are in high school and college and then i think most people have this friend that as you grow up you change the way you want to go to bars and parties change the stories of what you want your nights to end at change and there's like one or two people or something like that that just don't change what gets very awkward because this person has been a lifelong friend but also like i don't want to go to the strip club at two in the morning or try to buy coke from this guy in the alleyway or whatever it is like that may have been a one-time fun story when we were 18 but like you know i have a job to get up for at 8 30 this was supposed to be a birthday dinner for a friend like that kind of friend, he does a perfect job exuding that type of person that you do kind of want to hang out with, but also understand why a guy who lives in a a, a barely finished cabin out in East County with a bunch of guns <laughs> below him. And, and the word living is loose. He's squatting there. He's squatting. He's which paying no out, rent. <laughs> we find out soon. So anyway, uh, so that's kind of their dynamic. And obviously, like I said, Mike has kind of gone through this. I was bummed. And I mentioned this to Peter. Because when I first saw this movie, this was their first movie, and then I saw them. At, uh, well, I saw uh, Vinny in in Spring. That their IMDb did not get filled out from this movie or their appearances in Spring or The Endless. Uh, Vinny, the the guy who plays Chris in this movie, he's is basically in three movies. If you go to both of their Wiki, or this movie's Wikipedia, both of them have red links attached to their name. And nine years later, that's kind of a real bummer because I think 
having good actors in no budget horror movies is a is a challenge and it's cool that they continued to act and it's cool that they you know Aaron and Justin kept putting them in their movies for the most part but uh still a bummer that like uh they just didn't find anything like I was hoping to even see like oh yeah I mean he was in Sharknado 4 and one of them's on a uh you know CW sitcom and like the sixth lead but great and uh clearly that hasn't happened which I kind of a bummer yeah, yeah. I, I, um, both of them seem like they would, uh, they'd, they'd be uh, just fine in other indie dramas and, and you know, whatever, just getting work. But yeah, um, you know, maybe we don't know the story. It's hard to find much, much about them. Um, maybe they just weren't that interested in doing that. And also, like, yeah, Resolution maybe. was a movie not a lot of people saw. So, like, um, just because, like you the movie you made might be known in the horror community doesn't mean like your performance is going to be recognized or your performance is going to be recognized by producers who want to bring in <laughs> bring in people right so it's it's it's, it's a bummer so mike starts like you know he's he's trying to occupy his days because uh chris is just getting off of meth so he's exploring the small town uh during this time uh some drug dealers come and demand that he gives them the drugs uh, and Mike's like, hey, I'm with him. He doesn't have this stuff. That's a conflict. Additionally, these people from the uh, the reservation come over and are like, hey, you're actually on reservation land. Uh, Chris doesn't own this house. You got to get out. And Mike agrees to give him uh, give give them the money. Um, I don't think we'll come back to this. So can I just throw in a little? Yeah, yeah. There? I think that guy's played by that guy's played by the uh, one of the, the guy. Fr- oh yeah, no, I knew him. I'm like, oh yeah, fuck yeah, the guy from uh, the Shining sequel, Doctor Sleep. Yeah, he's one of the only recognizable actors I think um, from these movies. Uh, Zach McLarnan, who is uh, one of the more prominent um native american actors um he's in dr sleep as aaron noted which is awesome uh he's really really fucking good in fargo season two he's sort of like i've not seen fargo season he's sort of an anti-hero dash villain in season two it's pretty cool okay. um he's also great in a small role in bone tomahawk um in a way in a scene that almost i think bleaches the movie's conscience of some of the racism in the movie almost and then uh yeah he's just he's just a uh, he, he's playing a guy who works for the tribal security or you know he works for the he works for the casino but also he sidelines i think taking care of some of the um the drug addict problems for the community he says uh, a lot of junkies buried up in these hills um, yeah and, he, and uh, I'm not saying that uh, the best way to deal with drug addicts is to murder them. I'm just saying that um, it's a way. Yeah, that Native Americans have uh, some sovereignty on their land and uh, it's often impugned by uh, assholes um, or people yeah. that are just not in their right mind. Um, yeah. Yeah. And I clearly he also knows kind of what's going on, which you're not going to know much of till the end of the movie. And you're not going to know the full story till the endless because he is like, you need to get out of here before uh this thing happens essentially right which we're going to talk about more in the endless like what that thing is and that's why he's like you have seven days but you need to leave as soon as you possibly can Uh, so mike starts finding all of these like things that uh both like that seem to be left for him right like there's a dog that comes and visits but also so they think they're going to see the dog but then they see these photographs and these pictures and they all are these like 
weird stories that end in tragedy that seem to take place in the area. So he starts exploring more. He finds a weird, like, creepy stone shack, like the one I mentioned was by the house that we rented. And he finds all these videotapes and film, and he's, you know, starts looking at them. Then he gets a library book sent to him, and he goes to the library, and there's all these um, slideshow slides. Uh, there's definitely a name for those, but I'm forgetting because they were a little bit before my time. Uh, Wait, and, can we, uh, really quickly, that's how the movie started, is that Chris was sent... Well, yeah, I, we, I said or, that. Uh, uh, Mike, uh, yeah, Mike sent video, and then Chris is like, I didn't send you any fucking video, man. That's the part I didn't here. get to, that when he mentions, how'd you get here with the map and the video, Chris is like, I didn't send you a video. Mike blows it off as because you were fucking messed up on drugs, but you find out later that 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 may not be true. So... He does feel like there's something odd going on with these with these stories and that clearly there's someone that wants to tell them stories that end in tragedy. Now, worth noting, a part of this movie that I noticed more on second watch and one thing I think is really interesting from the story is definitely told from Mike's perspective. He doesn't get cell phone reception. He's going off and calling his wife. He's You see him when when he's not at the cabin, which he, he's not at a lot because there's not much to do at the cabin. Um is that you? Chris is starting to to feel like, hey, is there something wrong with you? Like, is there something going on with you? Because he keeps coming back with like old style projectors to to play these slides that he got, or like uh, a reel to reel, or eventually a VHS that he's hanging up curtains, and he keeps talking about these photographs and these horrific endings that he keeps seeing. And from Chris's perspective, he's like, yeah, there's odd stuff that goes up here. He also has a healthy dose of paranoia. He's like, there's government helicopters and satellites. And that really takes a turn when they get sent videos of like when Mike first got there and uh, they start getting videos of themselves. And there, there's a lot of like, well, who could have taken this? Who knew that we were here? And eventually like they get sent a, a video or sent to the laptop of a, a conversation that had happened five minutes later. And then eventually they're basically getting stuff that starts happening in real time in the future. And they realize that like, there is something going on. There was also was like these French students that disappeared 30 years ago that were like researching this. They talked to a, a doctor who lives in an RV or a professor who lives in an RV. It's odd that he's there. He talks about that he's known this for a long time. His whole conversation makes a whole lot more sense. Or having seen the endless, but we'll get there. And uh, so eventually they're like, okay, so I think this this thing needs an ending, needs a story, like needs a story. That's what it needs. And they start getting messages from the future, both a CD that they play in their car when they're trying to escape at the end, um, that basically indicates that like they're going to get killed. They also either by the drug dealers or the people from the reservation who are going to kill them for staying too long. And so they're like, well, we can't leave. Mike doesn't want to leave because whatever this thing is, this curse to play out this story, he doesn't want to bring it back home and make his wife and his kid a part of it. So they're like, well, maybe I get this feeling if we just wait till the end um, of when all these tapes play out and we're able to avoid getting murdered, it'll end for us. So they kind of hide out knowing that basically there's two people, two groups of people coming to kill them. The, uh, the, the indigenous people from the reservation and the, uh, the drug dealers who want their, their drugs. They wait in the bushes for 
uh, the the people from the reservation to kill the drug dealers, and then they burn down the house, and they're like, "Great, we got a happy ending." Plus, we've reconciled as friends. We we had some really great conversations throughout this, as like what what we mean to each other and a lot of stuff like that, and and we're good friends. We're we're good, and we we ended up not dying. Bad people died. It's a great ending. And it uh, switches to like a point of view shot that starts getting larger and larger and larger. And um, Chris goes on his knees and said, we're so sorry. We're so sorry because they think they're out of it. And then Mike says, "Uh, what if we try to do it again? And uh, like another cut of the movie and the movie ends uh, really abruptly from that moment. Uh, So, yeah, the first time I saw it, like that last half or the last uh, 30 minutes where they're getting messages of themselves in the present and in the future, ton of creepy moments. It really goes from this like we got to like it. You almost think it's going to be a torture porn type movie, right? I got to chain this guy in this cabin and keep him so. One of the posters se- is a is a wrist handcuffed to a pipe. Yeah, and it looks like I don't know if it's bloody in the actual poster, but you like this guy forces his friend to be sober. Like you expect there's going to be fucking someone breaks a wi- a window pane and grabs a shard of glass and like plus people are trying to get him and this guy like defends it. Like that's what I was expecting. So the fact that you get this like relatively low-key drama that turns into this horrific uh, witchcraft type like what is happening around here uh and you find out from the endless which we'll get is essentially that mike was completely wrong if they would have left before this thing happens that causes them to be in the time loop that we already mentioned they would have been fine that's why the people from the reservation were like, you need to get out. And we're also trying to kill them before they got stuck in time loops is the way that I interpret it. But um, I imagine it's easy to be perplexed at the end of this movie and go, OK, well, you had a lot of creepy stuff and you didn't know how to end it. Uh, you know, it was a happy ending. It's not a happy ending. You imply there's some giant demon or something about to kill him. Movie end. It was satisfying. Right. For what it was at the time. Yeah, yeah. At the time, it was it was a a, a, a cool calling card. It was a good promise yeah. of of what would come. There's a lot of great detail here that rewards a second viewing. It's well made. It's well performed. It's breezy. It moves by very quickly. So like yeah. you know, rewatching it is not like rewatching like I don't know. People are talking about like oh, I watched Tenet for a second time, and I'm like, <laughs> okay. Um, this is like a sub 90 minute uh, movie with limited characters and a, and a, a tighter structure. So like, yeah, um, I guess it's a loose structure, but it's a it's a the structure itself is actually pretty easy to track with. It's not exhausting. And I, I, I think that the the sort of uh, I feel like uh, the place I want to start because I think we I don't want to lose it. Is that like what caveats come with the movie? And I think that that's one is that the, the movie will probably um on first watch unless you're really paying attention it might be a little underwhelming because you're just like oh oh it's just over okay um but if you watch it uh a second time or you watch it very closely or you watch it in the context of this is like a lovecraft movie and these guys are kind of doomed from the start i think you'll be way better off um two uh the movie kind of does have what i call clerk syndrome where they're like it's an indie movie so we need to say fuck every third word (laughs) Um, and there's also a lot of like clerk syndrome stuff, like saying the word fag and saying the word retarded a lot. Like there's a lot of, there's a lot of just tossing around like slurs that like, even in 2012, I, in 2012, I was in college 
And I would have not said either of those words. I had worked, I was whatever, 20, and I, I worked those <laughs> those words out of my, my vernacular by then. Um, so I said it to Peter. So uh, Chris, the, uh, the drug character, uses one other F word and one uh, R word, which um, always feels like, yeah, I mean, it's unnecessary to say those words. I do think putting it only in the mouth of chris makes it give you more of a sense of him as a character the movie's not better for it could have easily been out there's it just adds a layer of uh yuckiness but i will say at at the the minorest of minor defenses it's coming from one specific characters it is not a movie where mike or a lot of these other people are saying it constantly yeah yeah it's it's just something i need to warn up front that like our character that is also like very funny at times um, to sort of, you know, talk about the next thing. Our character that's very funny at times says this, but like there's a couple lines in the movie that that uh, that Chris throws out that are like absolutely like hilarious to me. And like I had to pause to they they happen so fast. I had to like pause it, uh, when they came through this time. Mike gets goes into a cave, sees these cave drawings and then he goes back to the house and Chris is, and he's freaked out because a uh, homeless guy jumped up and, and barked at him or whatever. Uh, he gets back to the house and Chris wakes up from his nap and he's like, there's a lot of hobo junkies in that cave I sent you to. Don't go to that cave, man. <laughs> that line reading killed me. Absolutely killed me. And then earlier there's a line reading where he's talking about, I think this is just something he decided while he was on meth. And now that he's sobering up, he can't, he, he doesn't know that this is something he came up with on meth. Um <laughs> He's saying like, oh, yeah, this county's crazy, man. There's 13. This town's crazy, man. Do you know that there's 13 mountain lions per person? <laughs> that that line just fucking killed me both times. I do I do like that a mountain lion shows up in the endless, though. Yes, yes. And like the mountain lion seems to be dancing in and out of people's bubbles. Like the. I don't so it think looks that... like there's more uh, mountain lions than there are, which is, yeah. I don't know if that's a callback, but if it is, that's a fucking great callback. Yeah. Or like, you know, I, we don't know how much tied the, the mountain lions are to the, the, the cycles. Like, we don't know yeah. if this god is even bothering to bind these mountain lions to the cycles. Well, it uh, seems like the, this is a tangent for later, but like, it seems like animals are not able to penetrate the bubble um but yeah there's there's a there's there's a there's a happy ending uh that's sorry it seems like we're coming to a happy ending but it's sort of cut short by god do you, are you comfortable with us just using the word god for this like yeah i, I think like that's, that's fine I, I, that's um, what i wrote I, in my notes just, i just kept putting god as shorthand but then eventually i'm like yeah why not like we don't know the name of this thing they never put a name on it they put they call it like the celestial they come up with some well the uh, cult the cult does Look, and also Celestial I'm actually Messiah, fi- but they don't know any better than we I'm do. actually fine if it is the Judeo-Christian God, because he's nothing if not a sadist. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like, but what if we did Job for eternity? Like Job wasn't a one-off. Like, I gotta got my Jobs. <laughs> one thing I really like is for a movie that, uh, as we mentioned, was not about like addiction or um the idea of getting someone off uh off drugs and stuff like that that was a framework that made sense for them to tell their story and they did kind of at the time it's interesting they noted that this was supposed to be a little bit of a goof on uh indie horror movie tropes that idea of like you keep finding weird tapes or you keep going out to the cabins and meeting strange people that everyone should leave for like it was supposed to be somewhat comedic in the sense that like 
this guy keeps finding all of these low budget uh, horror icons and he's not leaving and here's why he's not leaving i think some of those elements don't trans transfer well to the movie you're actually watching but in reading their description of what they were going for i think it, it makes some sense although i i get the sense that they also believe that that stuff didn't work because then they're like hey instead of thinking th- this like ending is kind of a goof on indie horror movie endings let's actually just make it make a lot more sense but um yeah, i'm with you it's it's uh that they, they kind of they kind of uh, uh ditched the parodical and just took it as literal yeah let's let's go into a little deeper all these things that are supposed to be kind of uh, which which ultimately ended up being uh, a really good choice for them uh, for for both resolution's sake and the analyst's sake. But uh, one thing I I find really good. So obviously the 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 drug stuff was like basically how do we get a framework? They they write about like wanting to still do it justice and not just use it as a cheap ploy to tell their story. So they did a lot of research and. Um, you know, kind of did the work to learn about addiction, recovery, both uh, both how the people that try to support recovery as like friends and family fail and how it ends up being successful. And I think this movie, you know, we're going to talk about this more next month a little bit, especially with Brigsby Bear. But I do really like this movie that like Mike is not played as by the end of this movie as someone who did a good thing. He is someone who had good intentions but it's that classic thing that we see in real life and movies so much. Like he went in and tr- you know, didn't listen to what his friend was saying, didn't didn't think about it from his perspective, didn't listen to, hey, as my friend, what do you need? And maybe and and uh when his friend was basically saying, I don't need anything from you, that was too tough for him uh to listen to. So but he was like, I'm still gonna fix them, and even even as he's going through this life change he's like almost putting the onus on chris like okay i'm gonna give him one last chance for for him to let me fix him but that this movie like recognizes especially as it comes to like addiction and stuff like that that you that you can't fix people on your terms you have to figure out a way to help them uh on their on their terms and sometimes and if they want help and if they well that's exactly right like their term sometimes means I don't want help, and that can be uh, frustrating from a um, from your own perspective because you feel like they are doing damage, but or in some capacity, and sometimes just you know, depending on who you are, you could be right, you could be wrong, but ultimately, like, there's no such thing as like truly forced help. And so they have a lot of those conversations in the movie where like Mike kind of posits himself as like. Uh, you know, someone who's taken the cross on his back and is really trying to help his friend. And at some point, Chris really calls him on that bullshit. Like, you wanted to do this because of this. Stop acting like you're some selfless person who's literally kidnapping me and tying me to a radiator because, uh, you know, you, you wanted to be the hero. You wanted to have a win. And he eventually admits that when in their last conversation in the movie. Like, they... um. He, he says that clearly, like, I was about to have a kid and I felt like, could I, you know, this was the, the challenge of me being a father. Like, could I take someone from a bad situation and make it better? But, I mean, if you start treating your friends in your life or your family members in your life uh, as, as if they're children for you to parent and control, uh, A, it's probably not going to be all that effective. And B, it's definitely uh, not the place that your relationship should be going. Uh, so... 
I, I just I, I found it like it's kind of backgrounded in all the horror tropes and just the fact that these two people really work well as friends and people that are charismatic with each other. But I do think that um, they take the idea of like a forced treatment and forced sobriety and, and and forcing someone to change to what you want them to be pretty seriously for a for a movie that. Uh, that basically created that plot point as a framework to hang their horror movie on. Yeah, I think that's a good point. It's also, it, it shows you that how much they thread that needle um, where yeah. the movie is very funny and they actually do have a good catharsis at the end, but the catharsis at the end isn't uh, like, fine, I'll go to rehab. The catharsis is like, I think we understand each other a little bit better. I know why you locked me up. I uh, You know now why you locked me up. Like, but man, just like, let me let me die out here yeah and also they do that great thing where it's like yeah i'm here to support you right i'm here to help you like that's what friends do friends don't always do everything that you want them to do in their individual life and their personal life but in the moment that you needed them they were they were here for you and that last like conversation which if you're watching the movie with like a timer on your blu-ray player i'm sure for the first time you're like there's six minutes left in this movie. They're doing a five minute conversation. <laughs> like, where's this going? <laughs> and it makes sense because then the next 40 seconds are super sudden. But I, I still think that all those conversations are really, really great. And it, it, it's the type of thing that I think lesser movies gloss over or keep it very surface level. And or they don't um, put in the runway to actually, you know, land the plane. Yeah, exactly. And so, like, when you get to something like Spring that really does have horror and Lovecraftian components, but is also, like, a fantastic love story about meeting someone and having certain expectations and wanting certain things. And does that make you selfish or does that mean that, like, there's a – like, that is a movie that felt so, like, how is this a sophomore sequel? Because it – it nails uh, love stories and the con- and how complicated uh, feelings of love are and being in love is. You know the fact that they were able to nail that on their second movie. Like you could go, how the fuck were they able to do that? But when you see resolution and realize, like they really care about who their characters are and their interpersonal connections and treat them like real people. Uh, you you really see where Spring came from, and that serves them very well in the Endless as well, which is which is a ultimately a complicated you know interpersonal movie about two brothers who have escaped a cult and like uh, after their parents died at a young age and what that like what that does to a familial relationship that isn't necessarily cement, meant to be paternalistic. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's the entire journey of The Endless. The Endless ends up being a far more optimistic film. And this feels like, I'm not going to say a more cynical film, but it's it is a film with, I think, a more devious sense of humor um, that right after they have their big cathartic moment, they um, they uh, get murdered and get. Well, yeah, they they literally say, like, this is it. What an ending. We understand each other as human beings. Like, this is must be what the monster wanted. And then yeah. they find out, uh, no, you need to die violently. But, Peter, hopefully that transitions well to let's start talking about The Endless. You have uh, – we have about five minutes to talk about. It's a joke. We'll, we'll talk about it for a while. Well, we can <laughs> talk about it and then have the same conversation again for five minutes and again for five minutes and again for five minutes. Sounds great. <laughs> as yeah, long as you get me a gun, which is a reference to The Endless, not 
a cry for help. Uh, yeah. Um, Aaron, uh, I don't want this podcast to be endless, so let's talk about the endless. We have to do another music break. Just do the... Uh, hey, Aaron, um, do you want to give us some alternate taglines? Sure, I'd love, 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 sure, I'd love. Two. I got out of the loop at the end. Before we get into this, I have a core question that we probably need to answer. So how aware of the loop are people? Because like... Oh, I think they're extreme. Once they're in the loop, I think they're remarkably aware of the loop. But, like, sometimes it's just, like, it, it is amazing that certain characters are just, like, I'm going to do the same shit over and over and over again. Because <laughs> there's that character in the tent who's clearly been trapped since, like, the fucking Civil War. Uh, but he's in a five-second. So, I think what ends up happening is there's uh, a reset period when the loop happens. So, like, there's a reason why um, Mike and um, Mike and Chris, when you see their loop reset from the beginning in this movie, from the resolution loop, uh, that you see them start out the same way, and then you don't see the rest of it. And they make a funny joke about, like, hey, how about when next time the loop resets, you don't fucking greet me with that same dumb thing? And I think it's because they, they do retain their memory. They are aware of the loop, but um, they get all that information in a short amount of period really quickly from when the, the loop resets. So the Civil War guy, the five-second guy, I think, like, you see him. He comes back in the loop. He <laughs> resets. He kind of has a look of like, oh, shit, I know what's going on. Gets up to escape his fate and then is dead before he, like, a second after he leaves the chair. So I I think everyone is. His is the like- scariest fate, I think. Him him and the him and um, uh, shitty Carl have the scariest fate for sure. Agree. They have very small either time loops or spaces that they can go. Very, very, like, just terrifying. It's thing. just them. And a means of killing themselves. <laughs> well, the Civil War guy does not have a means of killing himself, which means his reset is always in the worst possible way that a lot of people try to avoid, which is getting killed by God. Mm-hmm. Anyways, yeah. we'll, we'll get there. But I think they are very aware of the loop. And they have that conversation with Mike and Chris where they fucking know everything about the loop. And Mike, in the same way he was trying to investigate the photographs and stuff like that, is now spending his life in the loop trying to investigate ways out of the loop and i do love that his general like optimism i guess and just like a chillness over these crazy things have uh continued on to being stuck in a time loop because he's still you know i, I said in the resolute in the resolution part that he's like kind of uh, too calm which was supposed to be a joke in resolution but now they've just made it to like that's just mike he's like all right well i've been in this for 10 years time to solve the, another another week to solve the time loop conundrum <laughs> and i think that's actually why i don't think resolution is would be that interesting to talk about for this month by itself and well why. there's no technical time loop so it wouldn't even make fucking sense i mean i mean like they say uh you know they're using the terminology story instead of like loop uh, yeah. as much and you don't get to see uh, our protagonists go through the loop, even though you see some sort of like timey wimey stacking, uh, similar yeah. to in time crimes. You're not seeing that, but like by the time you get to the endless, they've 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 added a little bit more of a, a codified. Um, yeah, they've added a, more of a codified uh, a vision of what this hell is. Yeah, so let's quickly let's go through the plot because I know we have a lot to talk about with it. 
Um, so actually, let me start uh, in the previous movie. <laughs> um, so there's these two. Uh, there's these two kind of uh, Mormony looking guys. Um, three of them actually um, that run into Mike in the previous movie. Um, that's uh, Benson and Moorhead playing themselves and uh, playing their characters. Ma- mainly because the special effect budget was going to be high, and they were trying to cut costs. Yeah, and uh, Justin and Aaron uh, are, are their character names, as well as a David, which is interesting because that character comes back. Uh, that Just as a note, that guy is one of the producers, and he also produced After Midnight. Um, his name is uh, David Lawson Jr. Um, also, really very quickly, because I feel like I rushed through it, on one, one of Mike's walks, he meets a younger Justin and... Aaron, uh, who are in this UFO cult and are like, hey, they're dressed as like Mormons that are going through the door. And they're like, hey, no, like, yeah, no, we we have a love with a celestial being. And he's like, okay, dude, gotta go. And it's kind of just a joke about how weird it is. But um, I totally, like, it's really quick, too. It wasn't until they show the clip from Resolution the first time I watched this movie where I was like, oh, fuck. They were in. I totally forgot they were in resolution. It, it, it it's it's sort of a clever way for them to base their sequel because they get to both save money. It's also the, the endless was when they started to get known as filmmakers, and so there was yeah. like an audaciousness or a ballsiness to them. <clears throat> sort of um, the ballsiness of the movie just I think escalated over time, right? Like, okay, you're making a sequel to a movie that that very very few people saw outside the horror community. Well, but worth noting is one of the few times i can think of where the idea of a secret sequel was kept a secret like i had no fucking idea going into this that i think people didn't know basically until it was on vod like yeah and also like not a lot of people had seen resolution it took people a little bit to make the connection it wasn't until interviews started happening when they were promoting the movie that people started catching on like it, yeah. it, was, it was it was cool it became like a word of mouth thing as opposed to a marketing thing um yeah. So, I mean, obviously, interviews are marketing, but you know what I mean. <laughs> but uh, anyway, so they are they uh, escaped the cult, um, quote unquote, escaped um, after the events of Resolution, which, which must have been like later that week, based on what we're going to learn later on. Like they, they met Mike and then somewhere in the next few days, they finally escaped. Yes. And so they, quote unquote, escaped from the the cult. Um, and the one and they're working in L.A. and they're living a absolutely miserable life um, of counseling so, and ramen. Sorry, what did you say of counseling for like their cult stuff oh, yeah. and ramen? Yeah. Um, yes, exactly. They're going to deprogramming. Um, they're eating ramen uh, in the houses of the people's houses. They're cleaning, I think, to just because they don't have time and they're saving gas bill. They're living literally like. Their car battery is about to break. They don't. They can't even afford to replace it. They're skipping meals. It's they're like busy. hand to yeah. They're eating you know hand to mouth. Uh, if there's anything to put in the hand, right? And worth worth noting, I think the implication is that like maybe they were like fifteen, sixteen, and like twelve or thirteen, and uh, they did you mention the the parents dying? Not yet. So their okay. parents died, and they were rescued by the cult. Um, specifically, car Tim crash from the cult. Pulled out, yeah, pulled out crash. of a car crash on the side of the road on the way to the the compound. Yes, and so the uh, the group uh, pulled them out of the car crash and adopted them, and then they left the cult. And the conflict here is that Justin, quote unquote, saved Aaron. But he had to come up with a bunch of Heaven's Gate riffs to give him an excuse why they were leaving. And Justin's the one who's kind of like, 
during all this kind of reminding him like uh hey this is a cult like everything you're saying is culty every all this language is culty and but uh Aaron just has good memories of the cult he remembers fishing and he remembers being happy and he remembers uh great meals to eat uh yeah a beautiful older woman who uh gave him attention and like uh yeah just good food good beer good, good, good exercise good vibes it's it's sort of like a very like idyllic great prices community. great prices it's it's a menards um <laughs> good people good prices um, <laughs> i mean for so, their beer i don't know what they charge but re- really really quickly because we're never going to get back to it so the whole thing is is that justin felt like they were all about to kill themselves he got, it was getting the vibe that like something is really about to be wrong and they left, and Aaron is starting to think about the call because he got a he got a videotape from that older woman who would have been like in her twenties to from his perspective at the time, who's like, "We're finally going to do it. We're going to ascend." And Justin's deal is like, "See, this is what I was worried about ten years ago. They are going to do it." And and Aaron's like, "Well, if they are going to do it, let's finally go say goodbye." <laughs> Yeah, and they and so they he convinces him, and I think he's what he's sort of saying is like I think he's saying he's saying he, I think he's saying that like you told me they were going to kill themselves ten years ago, and they're still here. They're sending me videotapes. And Justin, I think, finally is realizing like I we both need to put this to bed. Let's yeah. go. Let let's go do this. Um, yeah. and then Aaron also retorts like, if you thought they were a death cult, why are you letting us go? Um. Yeah, I really like their conversation on the way where, like, Aaron Aaron is both self-aware, but also is, like, clearly has a little bit of an agenda to wanting to prove that basically Justin was wrong about everything. Because, like, he's like, I don't know, maybe they were just nice. Maybe they were a commune. And Aaron was like, look the same. Like, he start, or sorry, Justin starts listing things that are culty that they learned in uh, rightly in deprogramming and... And Aaron's like, yeah, okay, that's all really culty. Like, he's not, he doesn't not get that this stuff is off. But he's also recognizing, like, who cares? They were weirdos. And they're not, they never committed suicide like you said they were going to. And we clearly weren't at risk. So I've spent the last 10 years miserable. Yeah, yeah. They And they've clearly both been fucking miserable. Miserable, like, yeah. Um, and one of them is, is Aaron is being more clear about it, but Justin's trying to put on a brave face for his older brother or his little brother. Right. Um, and as you were pointing out, this relationship is developing throughout the movie as, uh, Justin is trying to, Justin is trying to assert authority over Aaron and make him see like, Hey, like I've been taking care of you this whole time. My, my, my efforts have not been in vain. Um, and it actually takes me back to what the movie actually starts with, which is, uh, Lovecraft quote, sorry, the oldest and strongest emotion of mankind is fear. And the oldest and strongest fear of the of mankind is the unknown. And then they followed up with the quote, uh, friends will tell each other uh, they love. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> friends will tell each other they feel uh, how they feel with relative frequency. Siblings wait for a more convenient time, like their deathbeds, which is just yeah. a great pair. Of great, like, great pairing. It, it's like, all right, this is a cosmic horror movie, but this is also a movie about relationships. Like usually opening quotes are just like the person being cute or pretentious. In this, they're like, okay, this is a, this is a cosmic horror movie, but also like, this is very much about uh, two brothers having to sort out their shit. And this one is the shit they're sorting very... out is that Aaron needs like independence. Aaron needs to make decisions on his own and Justin will not fucking let him. Well, but also like Justin 
is not prepared to be a parent. Like, right? Like, theoretically, their parents died when they were six and three, respectively, <laughs> somewhere around there. And then Justin and Aaron were raised at the by a cult for the next ten years. Um, you know that that is not necessarily striking to me as like. And then, uh, you know, uh, Justin fearing for his little brother's life because stuff was starting to really get fucked up, uh, finally makes him to escape. And now they're being, you know, raised by, you know, who, who knows, like, a, you know, government programs and assistance and stuff like that. And, like, somehow just because of how they are in their teenage years, Justin has graduated to parent in this whole process. and But you also recognize, like, Justin is not equipped to be a parent, and he almost has had no choice just because there, that figure doesn't exist. Yeah, yeah. And Aaron has this sort of naivety about him. So they each have their, their strengths and their sins, right? Um, so, like, Justin, Justin is, like, somebody who can kind of, like, bottle his emotions and kind of, like, keep them down and be, like, a strong sort of um, leader type. Um, but he is patriarchal and condescending and doesn't know yeah. how to allow for freedom. And, and Aaron is naive, but Aaron is open-minded and Aaron is trying to make decisions for himself. And like, it, it's just a, it's just a fun, it's just a fun dynamic, especially for the co-directors on a movie. Like that's kind of, that's kind of wild. Do you think, Peter, that if we were to get really granular about where our sympathies lie at different points in the movie, it would reveal that you are the youngest of a somewhat large family and I am the oldest of a large family? (laughs) I hope we have as functional a relationship as Justin and Aaron, though. I gotta say. Well, I think we... I mean, the proof is in the pudding, Peter. We record all this shit. I'm sure there is a little bit more recognition with that, that, um, that, like, I see a little bit of, like... Yeah, I don't know what I'm doing either, but I might know slightly more than you, so I'm doing the best I can. And you're like, you're patronizing. You're not letting me grow and make this. Like, I'm sure we do have different perceptions a little oh, bit yeah. of their interactions just based on, uh, you know, our, our own. Like, I, I try not to be too much of a birth order thing, but I, I can't help but find it mildly funny that my boss, my wife, and my podcast co-host are the youngest of of families it does it does affect your worldview right like yeah what which which uh which chip off of which shoulder right uh where where you feel the need to compensate comes i think comes from what your family dynamic was like a little bit and just it's hard to unprogram because you had to live in that shit when you had absolutely no independence or freedom for the first x years of your life yeah, and I think middle children get a sense of both, but I do think when you're on one end of the spectrum, there is a little bit of like, I legitimately don't know what it's like to be patronized by my siblings, even though I have a ton of them, because it's impossible to patronize your older siblings. Like, it just is. Like, there's that part of like, yeah, I don't know. I saw you poop your pants quite a bit. Like, you know, <laughs> I don't know. Like, there's just a perspective that I think sometimes is like, even as you, you grow up and don't want to be defined by like, childhood relationships um it is sometimes hard with your own siblings to put to push past that successfully and i have a great relationship with a lot of my siblings but i i definitely don't truly understand i understand from an empathetic standpoint and like a recognition from conversations but i truly don't understand what it felt like to like see my brothers get to do things or make decisions in like a time that i was sensitive about it right like you know i always wanted to be the 
the kid that got to do things like go to concerts or or movie theaters and with my dad and stuff like that, I always got to be the first person that did it because I was the oldest. Like if there was a person who got to go do the thing, it was usually me. I never had to be in the position of watching like him take Luke to the cool older kid thing that I wanted to do or Tyler or Jake or anything like that. But they had to watch me do that. And I imagine there's an element, even though it wasn't like I wasn't going in and going, ha ha, you're 12 and I'm 14. So I get to do this. But how can you not form a level of uh, some level at that age of a little bit of resentment. I think the uh, refusing to acknowledge the power disparity from an older kid leads to like where older kids tend to feel like, well, that's not fair of you to get angry at me just because I was this. So I'm going to treat you like shit and I'm going to bully you and I'm going to do it like, you know, all those yeah. things like. So, yeah, it's just interesting because obviously we are this is definitely a movie about older and younger siblings just a couple of years apart. But how important those couple of years end up being to the way their relationship played out under these abnormal circumstances. So uh, it is interesting that we probably are coming from it from a little bit of a different recognition perspective oh absolutely absolutely and i already knew that and it's kind of condescending of you to tell me that um so and see just like an older sibling i didn't even realize <laughs> it because i don't think about the way that other people would feel because i'm an older sibling <laughs> i'm just teasing anyways get back to the recap um so camp arcadia is in the Cuyamaca Mountains, uh, sort of uh, East County, San Diego. And it is uh, an idyllic compound. It is, uh, there's free-flowing uh, craft beer, which is how they make their any of their profits. Um, they grow their own vegetables. Um, there's karaoke nights. There's exercise. There's archery. It doesn't seem very culty. It seems more commune. Definitely. And it's very commune. startling after everything you've heard, because there's a weird, creepy guy at the gate who's David. Um, who does not speak. Um, who, is, who is wearing, like, the Mormon cult uniforms they used to wear. Yes, yes. It's that buttoned-up look with a, uh, I must said a hacky sack. Um, I wish there was a hacky sack, man. Oh, man, I'd fucking hack right now. Yeah, uh, shred? Oh, oh, oh. Also, hacky sacking is a COVID-friendly activity. Um, not if you're playing, uh, Pelt. Oh, Yeah. Which is some more like we also we also we would do this game. It's very really cool. You put the hacky sack in your mouth and then you exchange the hacky sack between each player to start the game. So yeah, it's a trust, trust exercise. Yeah, it's trust thing. It's like a trust fall. Um, when the trust is you don't have a dangerous disease. Um, the trust a, uh, fanny is not pack. understanding how gingivitis is spread. <laughs> uh, fanny pack is what I was talking about. Um, so yeah, uh, there's sort of a creepy entrance to the. The thing, but once they're in there, it's like fairly idyllic. And this is not a sort of yeah. um, the sacrament or Jonestown-esque trick. Like, everyone there is pretty happy. And they their group bonding activities are all pretty consensual. It's all like karaoke. And it's like, and there's this game called The Struggle that we'll get to in a minute. Um, oh, really quickly, because we probably won't go back to it. There's some great moments if you watch these back to back where when they get to the camp. And it's played by the same actors. One of the they sell beer to make their money to support the commune that they make on site. One of the people loading up the beer is this uh, is the same actor who looks directly at them, who showed up in resolution for five minutes to someone who was like a we buy houses for cash guy who was trying to expand property and make money. You find out oh he was in this cult too, and clearly has some element in the business side. And then also, there's a moment in resolution that um. 
you think is going to lead somewhere and gets no follow-up, which is one day Mike wakes up and there's someone tapping on the window and Chris is like, yeah, there's a, there's a mental asylum near here. They let him wander out. It's not a big deal. And it's the same actress who ends up being a big part of actually the cult here. It's an incredibly af- creepy moment in Resolution. It's so incredibly scary. creepy moment. And it's it's her. And she's like, yeah, I used to go on walks uh, at the Mental Institute. When I got out, uh, you know, I ran into people and I ran into the, all these people here and I decided to join them. And it was like so like immediately when you watch these back to back, those are two moments that don't leave much of a mark in Resolution. And all of a sudden you're like, oh, interesting. <laughs> Uh, one is just a little cameo, and the other one is actually uh, one of the main cult characters in this movie. And she's fairly sympathetic in this. They take something that's it's purely yeah. just a creepy horror moment, probably put in to make the movie more sellable, to be honest. Similar to the well, also, homeless it, guy it, remember, in the cave. Remember, if you think of Resolution as we're going to toss in all these indie horror tropes as a joke about how many things they keep finding... Um, which is this, like, oh, there's a mental institute where people wander around at night. Um, that never goes anywhere in Resolution. It is supposed to be, I think, haha, like, oh, here's another chip we're putting on the table. Uh, yeah, And yeah, then they yeah. make that that same actor have a very interesting dynamic. She's a painter, and she, like, paints the visions that she sees. And she's, like, she's really good because she's really um, – she interacts with everyone a lot, but she's one of the only main members of the cult that came in after Justin Aaron left. So she also has a lot of chance to do a lot of those like, oh, yeah, I heard a lot of stories about you and, and a great like point of view audience character to get to know what their dynamic was at the cult by someone talking about or asking questions that wasn't there at the time. Yeah, that's a that's a really great point. <clears throat> Actually, while we're talking about that, let's jump back really quickly to a Lovecraft thing because um, we're not going to get back to it. Um, this you, I, Just as a pause, I think this episode is turning into we talk about the things as we get through the plot because we're never going to circle back to everything. Yeah, yeah. Um, this is just a very detailed, dense set of movies. Um, yeah. But the uh, there's in the previous movie, there's the, the French researcher um, who's been living there for 30 years and is pseudo like just trying to figure out whatever this phenomenon is. Well, he's pseudo- definitely seemingly stuck in a time loop. Right, because he was. I think the implication and resolution, especially paired with this movie, thirty years is, is a long period of time. The guy's probably in his fucking fifties, like at, at 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 earliest. Well, so I think the implication, if you put his speech next to what happens in the endless, is he talks about the French people that disappeared that were researching this stuff thirty years ago. I think the implication is he's one of those people that just, you know, is knows so much about it because he is existing in a time loop yes yes that that's that's one theory you could also say like he's someone who escaped the time loop and now it's haunting him um similar to characters like um um not zechariah the guy from in uh shadow over innsmouth um zebby allen or whatever something allen uh the homeless guy in shadow over innsmouth who um w- was only sort of uh glanced uh, a bit of the ceremonies and such and is irrevocably harmed for it and now just gets drunk all day i thought of that guy in that context where he like maybe he, he yeah glimpsed, he glimpsed the the immortal and it drove him a little crazy and now he just gets high all day um, yeah i i think so like uh, again I, it's definitely open to interpretation but i think the reason i'm reading it is that like basically all of these little horror moments that were meant as parody like the french professor who knows about the disappearance of students 
all every like basically every single one of those gets recontextualized as part of this celestial being godish time loop. So I think under under the idea that almost every minor character in Resolution gets recontextualized as part of this, I think it would be weird that he would be an exception. Yeah, yeah, yes and no. I mean, the because they do American go to his RV, not, right? The, the Native American guy is not in the time loop. Sure, but like. He very, I guess I got the sense from Resolution that he was not. He knew about the time loop. He knew how to avoid stuff. Like, it actually makes sense to me that he wasn't in the time loop. Um, but yeah, like, but but that's why I think that the French guy is outside of it, is that he, like, he, that's why he talks about uh, the people that got stuck in sort of like a third person in a sort of distant way. Um Though, you know, it could, it could go either way. I like to think he's outside of it, and that's why he's just, he's kind of, he's stuck here, not by the time loop, but but by the fact that, like, once you've, once you've gazed into that, once you've gazed into the abyss, and you've gazed into this, like, this, like, infinite oblivion, like, what, what, what how do you just, like, go on with your life? Yeah, but he, he's, remember, because they, they go to his RV, and he's not there, and there's a message left that almost indicates that, yeah. I guess you can make the case that he's an observer, but he says, like, this isn't exactly what it says. I didn't write it down, but it gives the vibe of, like, be back soon and then again soon and then again soon. Like, maybe he got stuck because he was looking for because he did say he yeah, was for his researchers. So maybe he got. Stuck yeah, I, I agree with that. Life. I just also get the impression that at some point when we meet him in resolution, he's already in the time. But anyway, so anyways, I'm going to jump back to something very stupid yeah. and very simple. Um, <clears throat> different drugs <laughs> give you different experiences of God. Um, so uh, you're if you if you smoke this red weed, um, you see God in one manner. If you take a hallucinogenic or cybicillic mushrooms or ayahuasca, you see God in a different manner. And like the idea is that like the human eye alone cannot see God. Uh, but if you uh, take these sort of mind-altering substances or these psychoactive drugs, you can um, you can gla- you can gaze into sort of uh, something something beyond. Um, and I think that's kind of a fun thing as a capper for our love uh, Lovecraft and other drugs month, because uh, we started with um, Colorado Space. And now we're at this point where, like, this movie is kind of codifying a lore around how drug use lets you see uh, God from different perspectives. And that explains why the monologue from the French researcher who says, like, some people see it as an alien, some people see it as an angel, some people see it as a ghost. And some of that is, like, your cultural context and how you need to sort this craziness in your mind. And some of that is... Uh, you know, the, the different, uh, drugs have a different effect on your brain. And that means that the way that this impossible color out of space creature is going to be interpreted by your brain in different manner. It, but it, uh, let's, uh, let's get back to the main, the main, uh, thread here. Um, yeah. So the, the vibe is super chill and everyone is younger that. Aaron, I think, was expecting a bunch of older people, and they're like all kind of their age, and um, yeah, and they seem nice, and they're they're just like, hey guys, we missed you, like everyone, but not in a culty way, not in a like, a, thank you for coming back. Oh my god, like everyone's just like, oh hey, what's up, dude? Like in the same way that if you like come back to 
your hometown and you run into a high school friend at the bar, like at first it's a little bit of like, hey, and then, you know, maybe later on you wander over and have a conversation, but you're not like immediately like, we were best friends. And do you remember this? Like, because at first it's like, oh, recognition. And then uh, specifically Anna, the older woman that Aaron used to have a crush on is essentially the same age as that. Yeah. And that's like a very funny conversation that happens where uh, Justin and Aaron are laying in bed on the first night because they're staying in the camp. They, they, yeah. they no one's, no one's making them at gunpoint stay there. They're just kind of staying because they were invited to stay. Uh, despite the fact that Aaron left the camp and immediately, you know, uh, went to the media and, and and basically like lied and said that these were like oh yeah that's why they had to stop wearing the uniforms <laughs> yeah and they, they said it's cutting into beer sales like it's yeah. cutting into it's cutting into their recruitment like they've had a lot of trouble because of the the news stories that got out about the cult um, yeah they're like we don't bear you ill will eventually it's like we don't bear you ill will but you told us we you told us when we were chemically castrated and like which is a heaven's gate thing you, you get you were really shitty because uh, Justin keeps moving through like when are you guys going to apologize to me and like the guy who is not a leader but is definitely the more friendly person Hal is like when are you going to apologize to us you destroyed uh, the public's perception we were on the news like you guys talked about how you escaped the suicide cults <laughs> like also why they're sleeping. There's post-it notes everywhere that says, please be quiet. And they can't quite figure that out because everyone in this camp is very loud at night. <laughs> yes. Um, they seem to like, they seem to almost exist in like um, tighter loops as well, even though they're they're clearly on a long loop. Um, we're like, uh, oh, well, yeah, tonight we're doing the struggle and tonight we're doing karaoke and tonight we're drinking and like no one seems sick of, of those activities. Everyone seems to still be having a good time. Like the reset seems to almost like rejuvenate them. Uh, but they all seem to be working on something that's like we didn't really talk about the reset yet. So we'll we'll get there. But like um, like Hal is working on this unsolvable equation and uh, the person from the Institute. Hold on. I'm pulling up her name right now. Uh, Lizzie is working on like paintings and she's trying to get paintings right. She talks about that's what she so like as they literally say like everyone has their thing that they're working to perfect or get better. Everyone has a hobby. Um, Yeah, that one dude is really into magic. Remember? Oh, yeah. And they're all like kind of good at their hobbies. Like Lizzie's art is actually like very developed and scary. Um, And the guy who, who does magic is like he has a lot of good like little flicks of the hand like stuff that clearly takes a lot of fucking time to figure out yeah and one of the biggest like pain points though for justin aaron is that like aaron is suspicious because all these people are his age that like justin's memory of them was like these old people now they get back you know there's with the exception of one guy who's like has the long beard and looks like he's in zz top like everyone's maybe the same age or a couple years older and i think aaron is basically suspicious that like justin's thing was like oh you were 15 and they were 18 and that's what you've put in your head like justin's like no these people must just be the sunlight and what kind of food they're eating compared to us but these people are in their 40s and 50s like based on what i understood how old they were they left 10 years earlier based on my age then they should be at this age like it it is a mystery um but they kind of do that that like oh it must be california living but but i think that's important because one of the dynamics that i think is worth pulling into a little bit is that aaron has like an immediate crush on anna 
And Anna's kind of like, um, there, there's a lot about how like Aaron's like, oh, she used to kind of be super nice to me when I was here too. And Justin's like, yeah, that lady was weirdly obsessed with you. Like she's basically a pedophile. And now that they seem like they're the same age, Aaron's like, they, she wasn't a pedophile. Like there's a couple years difference. Like, you know, plus, I mean, the, the dumb like thing, women can't be pedophiles. And Aaron's like, yeah, they can. Or Justin's like, yeah, they can be. And blah 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 and that does take on an interesting dynamic when you learn what's going on because there is probably 60 or 70 maybe more uh years removed between anna and aaron and uh anna is super into aaron and clearly was as a young child i think from a cultist perspective you could make the case that they've been here unknown amount of decades or centuries and it was a new person um, and there was a romantic attraction, but it definitely is like a, uh, a pedophilia thing that they, um, don't go into too much, but because it doesn't feel like pedophilia when two people are now seemingly the same age, but there's a lot there. Yeah. But it's also, it's, 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 it's in the context of these two guys like can't get dates and they don't really, they've never really socially fit in since they left. So like they, they're, they are sort of socially broken in a way um which so it, it i don't know it's kind of like a funny it's a funny moment that i'm glad they clip right at the moment they do because um they they're right at the moment that they do because they uh otherwise you know it would probably you know be problematic but it, i think that shows well, the wise filmmakers where they're like they're like these these two characters would have this conversation but um <laughs> These two characters would have this conversation, but like, oh, we don't necessarily need to pan this whole conversation now because you're going to think less of them too. <laughs> so. Yeah, I think I think that's right, but I would also say that um, I think the movie's trying to let you know, like, because Anna seems nice, right? Like, she seems nice. She seems like the same age. She seems like the nicest person in the camp. She's also very pretty. Like, yeah, and I think with this movie, you can is see why anyone to, like, would be sucked in by that, right? Yeah. But I, I think what this movie's trying to remind you of, like, she is a person that when that was in her 20s, 30s, 40s, maybe hundreds, we'll get to that in a second, and seemed to have a lot of attraction to a child when he was a child. So, like, the dynamic of him coming back and being in his 20s, and because she has an element of eternal youth being like we're basically the same age now like it's like let the right one in and some other thing like there's some problematic stuff there but probably neither of them have actually had sex and there's a funny part where like they uh they meet up and um after they were separated justin and aaron and and justin's like what'd you do last night he's like i slept with anna he looks at him for a second like you mean like sleep right he's like yeah what else would i (laughs) <laughs> like that's not if you're in your mid to late 20s and you like i slept with this girl and you don't even know what the other context of that word could be you you might be a little bit stunted from a sexual maturity standpoint oh yeah yeah <laughs> um that's the that's the 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 dark half of this movie is that they get out and um they still are they're still weirdos but at least they have each other um but uh, where where was I? So oh, so they so, so they're in the camp. Uh, I think we're essentially the, so they decide to spend the night, and then they do the uh, the challenge. Thing. They do the struggle, which is a big rope that goes up into the dark. They kind of debunk that like no one in the camp should could be performing this, and it's essentially you pull on this. 
big rope um and then there's some resistance uh an- like an animal like resistance to it and some and uh usually people can't beat the struggle except for uh Anna has um and uh but uh Aaron is able to Justin cannot and it's probably some sort of manner of faith you know um it Justin gets absolutely or Aaron gets absolutely his hand torn up uh by trying to perform this sort of like rope thing um and so that the 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 conflict is still brewing that like one of them is very much hates this stuff wants to get out and one of them um is like getting sucked in and like loves loves drinking beer and going to karaoke and and all that and then justin is just like we're leaving tomorrow and like well why not one more day yeah like what (laughs) what could this hurt and then also, so the next day, though, when they're there for the full day, things, you know, start to take a turn. One, they start finding weird pictures and slides and stuff like that, which, again, um, directly from Resolution, which is actually something I totally missed. You know, um, I forgot how much of Resolution was them getting these pictures and things like that. So when they first find, like, Polaroids and stuff like that, I wasn't quite connecting the dots Back to resolution, I thought it was more just like, oh, yep, the strange goings at the camp. But they're starting to get these messages, too, which this movie will eventually say is the way that this elder god communicates is essentially through like media Um, and uh, older media, newer media. It basically can run the gamut. But if you're a believer or you realize what's going on, you feel like there's messages from God. So they they do some stuff. They go shooting. Um, Justin notices that at some point his bullet just drops out of the air and he's like, what did you hit? And there's starting to be all these things that like, okay, Aaron's sense that this place was just a, uh, a hippie commune full of somewhat, uh, uh, weirdos is not true. Justin's inkling was, was right to begin with. Yeah. So at one point in this area, in this, in this like day or so, uh justin runs into this uh lady who seems very frustrated by the camp goings on and is like i keep telling him to be quiet i'm leaving notes everywhere and he's like oh you're leaving the notes that's weird and then he's like oh maybe this is a person she's cute he's like um well can i talk to you a little bit all these people are kind of taken or or weirdos she's like i'm very married I'm, i'm just up here looking for my husband he disappeared and i've been you know but i've been staying at one of their cabins um, we have a son, he's with my grandparents and like, you get the sense that something's off and how this connects back is when they do meet Mike and Chris again, which we'll get to Mike's like, I talks about how much he misses his wife and that they're always leaving. And that he used to, I miss all the stupid notes, uh, post-it notes she used to leave around. So you realize that this lady is Mike's wife who, after he disappeared, she went looking for him and got caught with the camp in their loop. And she can't get out. She can't get out. Yeah. Um, yeah. So uh, the timing of that must have been pretty tight between resolution and when, you know, th- so to speak, the lockdown happened um, when the loop closed. They And the way that uh, they signify this visually is that there's three moons and yeah. they fill. So there's a, you know, a moon and then another moon. And then when the third moon is full, uh, the camp starts to lock down and the loop gets closed. Yeah, so that's let's we we've referred to that. So essentially what happens is once the loop gets closed, you are stuck in your loop and you die. 
that means if that you were in your loop, like you enter, and the loop is signified by there's like these posts that people think are uh, volcanic residue that essentially mark off each bubble that you can have a loop within. So if you walk into that bubble or that bubble exists, that's when your loop starts. So the guy, uh, uh, Carl, who is, which we'll meet in a second, Shitty he Carl. was, Shitty Carl was in his loop for, you know, a few hours before the event happened. And the thing is, is that, like, once you're in a loop, that's the length of your loop. There's no changing it. So it can be five seconds. In the cult's perspective, who they all enter on their free will, it's ten years. So they get immortality. For every ten years, they have to get killed. Uh, And the only way to reset a loop is death. So if you're in a two-hour loop, you have two choices. And this is true for all loops, but I'm using this one as an example. The worst possible death is death by this elder god. Who they say it's, the, the people will put shotguns in their mouth. They'll do hor- horrific suicide. I mean, content warning. This movie is very much focused on suicide. People will do horrific shit to avoid fucking n- not dealing and this, with this. Yeah, it's echoed by Mike. It's echoed by shitty Carl's why At the end of the, the loop we see for Mike, they just keep burning down their cabin because, like, it's literally better to burn alive than to die at the hands of the being who, like, makes the most painful death that you could ever imagine occur. Or is it that the bubbles themselves exist in a certain time, and if you're in it when it happens? Like, that's one part I couldn't quite parse, is for Chris and Mike. are are Is the bubble that they're in, which we see as a physical dome, is that a seven-day bubble that once they enter, when they die on the seventh day, they automatically reset? Or is the amount of time that they're in there... When it resets, the amount of time they get it has. To, I guess it has to be the former, right? Because if you're in the cult bubble, which has a ten-year cycle, even if you got there during the last year, it would have to reset with the rest of them, right? Like you don't just show up with a year to go. Yeah, yeah. I but I feel like the. Do you the understand time what loop, I'm saying? Like, yeah, the time loops are somewhat arbitrary, though. The only reason they view this as an idyllic time is because they're all young and beautiful and have beer and they're, you know, it's the the weather is perfect, right? Like the only reason they 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 view their timeline as as perfect is because they just are in the perfect cult like scenario and they happen to be locked in it into it for a long period of time where it's. it's but what I'm saying is, I, I think. I think each physical bubble has its own reset time and the amount of reset time. Oh, yeah. Like shitty Carl probably died thousands of times in the time that it took their 10 years cycle to come back around. No, I think that's sorry. I'm so I'm not articulating well. So so I, I think the amount of time in each loop isn't dictated by how long you were in there when the time resets. I think once you're in the loop, when the time resets or the. The god kills everyone in this space. Uh, you're in there for however long the bubble you just happened to be in was. So the cult knows they're in a tenure bubble. So even if you were in the cult for a year and then died, you would still restart with 10 years to go to your next reboot. Right? Does that track to you? Yeah. Yeah. It has to, right? Because if not, the five second person couldn't have existed in that bubble for five like he couldn't have set up the tent and done everything that he needed to do yeah and and then time passes outside of the macro bubble time passes at a normal rate right correct yeah so that's why the bubbles don't over you spend your 10 years you walk into somebody's 10-year bubble like they they were right when you left 
Um, like otherwise the movie just wouldn't make sense. Yeah. And they're resetting personally, but they're not like resetting in that they don't know. They're just existing 10 years at a time. So I guess, um, they do like, for example, so the cult would age for 10 years and then reset and be 10 years younger. Right. So they never, they would like, if you are 30, when you go into the bubble and it resets, you might be 40 when you die. When you die, but then you'll be back to 30. So Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, okay. uh, that's 100% true. Okay. So I think that makes sense. So I think that, that actually squares a couple circles in that, like... Because otherwise, why else would Anna be the same age that they remembered her yep. as? Like, why would Tim... <sighs> be- because they did age while they were there. Because they were there for 10 years. Yeah. So what that gets to is that... When Justin and Aaron were found on the side of the road or whatever else, they they lived for their 10 years, right? Um, also, that would have sucked for them because they were to reset to children, which would not have been fun. Like They, they, they would have like an interview with a vampire Chris and Dunst situation where they're living in a perpetual stage of like 3 to 13. Or, yeah, you and you, you're, you're paying your – and yeah, yeah, exactly. And like you're <laughs> – even if you started at 15 and worked up to 25, like you're paying your dues for the first few years before. Oh, great. I got to wait for another couple of years till my dick does what I wanted to do. Yeah. Like you're still going, you're still wrapping up puberty if you're a boy at 15. Like, oh yeah. Like, well, if you're six too, right? Like you go every cycle, you're going through puberty. Jesus. Uh, oh, here's the couple years where and I'm your all hormones are just yeah. ravaging you every wow. single time. Like, talk about a fucking Lovecraft hellscape having to go through puberty over <laughs> and over again. Yeah, like you really want to wait till you're an adult to get into your ten year to ten year loop, ideally. So, but also vibe- the thing is because of the hormone issue with puberty. You couldn't you. okay. so like you like to uh, it's like if you think about like, oh, if I if I went back to high school, I would be probably a much better friend or whatever, because I would. Yeah, because your body would have emotional maturity. Yeah. yeah. However, (laughs) you would have the cost of still having those weird hormone spikes. So you probably would be a different type of shitty if you jumped back to high school. (laughs) Yeah. You'd be like uh, some sort of like alcoholics trying to give up drinking oh yeah that'd be that would be extremely weird is all of a sudden having to get a fake id at 15 <laughs> fuck you mom <laughs> dad uh yeah so the reason anyways the reason why justin was getting i think they're all gonna kill themselves which they call ascending vibes 10 years ago is that this was a all the stuff they're seeing now was about to happen and when they left that's when anna sent justin the tape it just didn't they don't really get into it. Doesn't really matter. But like the tape is from ten years ago when he's like, "Oh, you left my poor baby. Like we're gonna ascend. We'll miss you. Like that kind of thing. Like you left right before you achieved the immortality." And Justin was noticing multiple moons and all this crazy stuff. And he's like, "Okay, I I think I think things are gonna get crazy and they're gonna kill themselves," which they did. But because it's a time loop. To Aaron's perspective, he's like, they seem fine. They were fine for years after this. There's nothing like they're definitely eccentric, but we didn't have to worry about a suicide that didn't happen. And it essentially takes the most of the movie to realize, no, it did. That's actually part of the whole thing. So I think we kind of mentioned some of these bubbles that Justin explores, but really quickly for just context setting. After a couple of days of this and, and beating the struggle, which which Aaron does, he's like, yeah. 
I don't care if they are a cult or whatever's going on. These last couple days have been better than my last 10 years. I'm staying. And Justin's like, fuck you. I know this is getting weird. They're starting to see the multiple moons. I'm leaving. But unfortunately, um, Aaron never replaced the battery in the van, so it's dead. So Justin starts walking through the uh, landscape trying to find a way to get out. Yes. And so they meet up with this guy, Shitty Carl, who's just walking to his shed and hanging himself over and over and over again. And uh, he essentially, Shitty Carl is like pissed off and he says, and he basically lays out the rules like, you're gonna be stuck as shit forever. Um, But also he says like, how do you keep killing yourself? Basically, it's like you get used to it. And that sort of hammers home the point we were making that like dying by that thing is way worse than dying on your own. Um, He says it'll snatch you right out of your shoes. Um, and he wants which, a gun. Which we see I, I, from the Civil War guy, and he wants a gun, seemingly just to shake things up, because these guys aren't stuck in a loop yet. So they um, they can move from loop to loop. They can move from loop to loop, and he says those those hoodoos will help you navigate. Um, so there, it, it's sort of um, gamifying it almost in a sense, where he's like, "This is how you get from bubble to bubble to bubble," and you like, if you're stuck in a bubble, you can't even see outside of the bubble. Yeah. Um, it, it just looks like you're, you're seeing a reflection from the bubbles point of view from its bubble. That it's, exists. it's hellish. Um, and the, the hoodoos help you navigate, but he's on such a, sh- a short loop that it doesn't let him sleep and it doesn't let him dream. His mind just stays here. So he's on like a fucking he says it's using space and time as a horse whip, which I feel like is a really great like redneck colloquialism that uh, explains cosmic horror in a way, <laughs> yeah. in a way that like. It sounds like nonsense. And you're like, wait, that's actually really good. Like, <laughs> well, and I think he wants a gun for either one of two things, either to kill himself easier or what I actually think he uses it for at the beginning. And then he kills himself once he finally does get the gun. When Justin comes back with it is he's like, well, I have no way to fight this monster. I might as well fucking try to shoot him. Yeah. He wants <laughs> to at least give it a shot. Right. And there's also- he shoots. Because he shoots into the monster like five times, and then when he realizes that didn't work, he looks disappointed and shoots himself. But, like, I can't believe it's for continual quicker deaths just because, like, he just has the gun and those bullets. If that's if that gun is stuck in the loop when the loop closes, does that reset the gun? Uncl- See, that's, I mean... I guess it must, right? Cause they if must these guys are traveling from bubble to bubble, I like to think that they can change the past a little bit. Yeah, that makes sense. But um, the gun will reset with bullets. And there's like kind of a, uh, you know, like there's stuff, there's decisions that Justin makes where he like, he doesn't tell Mike about his wife looking for him. Yeah, I, li- I like that part. Uh, well, let's get let's get into the return to resolution. But here's the thing that I think makes the gun thing complicated. Because Justin's not part of the loop, even though he moves through it. When the loop resets, it's not like Justin starts showing up every loop. So if Justin doesn't start showing up every loop, then you can make the point that the gun isn't going to be there on the next loop either. Yeah, it might it might just be a one-time dealie or, or, you know, like my thinking is that Justin now has a sort of storytelling ability across loops. Um, no, but... I, think, I think Carl, because he shoots like... At most, he has six bullets, right? It's a revolver. He shoots five shots into... And then saves the, one for... And then saves one. And he does look like fuck. He says fuck. And he looks disappointed. He's like, 
I mean, why wouldn't he think that maybe he has no weapon to attack this guy? He's stuck in this like tiny circle in a barn. Uh, so it does seem like, hey, I've never I've lived who knows how long. I've never tried to shoot it before. Yeah, exactly. Um, and, and that's like also a thing that uh, the quote unquote gun nut tweaker uh, was up to um, because uh, yeah. the the lady uh, who was was it Lizzie? What's her name? Anna? No. Oh, Lizzie. The, yeah. Yeah, it was yep. in the mental health facility. Yeah, uh, she says that she used to help out this gun nut tweaker. Um, he there's in her images of her of uh, the gun nut tweaker shooting at it. So we meet that we meet that gun nut tweaker, and it's Mike and Chris. Who, uh, you know, Chris Chris gained a little weight. Who wouldn't have in eight years or whatever? But uh, Mike looks pretty much the same. It's pretty goddamn impressive what they did there. It's so impressive. If you watch them back to back, it's like, it's resolution, it's resolution, it's the same Mary's resolution, it's resolution. Like, watching them four or five years removed from each other, this was the part where I was like, uh, because there's a part that we kind of passed over where Justin goes to the bottom of the lake and finds a tape, and that tape is the scene from Resolution where they are evangelizing to Mike. And you're like, oh, it's these people, and they get really upset by that, and they're like, the God's trying to shame you. He's like, no, you're tr-. like, Justin's like, you're trying to shame me because you're mad at me. And he's like, yeah, I am mad at you. Hal, Hal's like, yeah, you made our camp look like shit. Um, but Justin also feels like he saw something that is like, I got to get the fuck out of here. And, and I think what he saw is the the God that you never, never really see. So, yeah, so they, they walk back and it's the because they need the gun from, yeah, from Chris, essentially. And you kind of find out where they've been. And, and we've already talked a lot about it, but there's, they, they know about the loop. They're making fun of the movie that we saw um, where they where they talk about how dumb they were at that time. But they're also like calling attention to some funny parts of the movie. Mike talks about his wife. We find out that the lady that we saw was his wife. You noted that Justin doesn't say that he met his wife, which I think is nice. Like, and it's an he, act of mercy. A hundred percent, because he's he's he recognizes he's caught in a hell dimension, and his only hope is someday getting back to his wife to meet his kid and to be like, "Oh yeah, your wife came after you and got stuck in the hell dimension." Like best case scenario, she finds you and gets stuck here too, right? Like there's there's no there's no winning here. They are so at peace with each other. I guess the big question is why is he still handcuffing Chris to the to the bed? Every I think it's because Chris is fucking unruly and he starts and he I, why does Chris allow himself to be handcuffed every time? I guess. Yeah, because Mike because Chris is like, I don't know, this dummy keeps trying to solve this. Um, Maybe they're running through is, scenarios, right? They're 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 doing what um, they're doing edge of tomorrow shit where they're like, OK, if we do this, this and this, we make it through this hurdle. But after that, we keep hitting this wall like they're workshopping, I think. Yeah, well, they say that. That makes sense because they say it pretty explicitly, right? They're like, because Chris is like this dumb dumb. He is just trying to figure out a way out, and and Mike is just like, yeah, I think if we try this, this will, you know. And when that whatever they're gonna try, which they don't go into too much detail, doesn't work, he's like, well, guess that didn't work. Well, better to burn this place, and you know, he he reinforces that like death by your own hand is preferable to death by God. And so he just stands on his porch, dumps the gasoline, sets it on fire. Uh, and I think it does recontextualize, like, the the reservation people as, like, trying to do it as an act of mercy. Like, hey, before this whole thing resets and you're fucked, 
Because they run in, they burn right before God sh- the the reset occurs, right? Like if yeah. you watch, rewatch that movie, notice who notice who's not in the loop. Exactly, they get the, uh, fuck the Native out American of- guy and the two the two tweakers. I you, I guess you're right. Yeah, I guess they wouldn't be in the loop, right? But they, wouldn't they still be in Mike and Chris's loop at least from that? I guess I don't know. Gets super complicated. Anyway, um, but they weren't in there. They were dead by the time the loop. Oh closed. yeah, so they stay dead. So even though the time loop moves on, it's Mike their story and- always ends with them going into that bubble and dying, going into the bubble and dying. Yeah, which again reinforces that if they would have left like the people from the reservation did, as opposed to staying, they probably would have been fine, assuming they didn't wander into another bubble. Because the landscape is riddled with them, Peter. Yeah, it's it's Bubble City. It's Bubbleton. Um, which which they show in a very good drone shot where it kind of shows all the different shapes and sizes of bubble that just litter this uh, landscape. Yeah, it's so cool. So there's this quote, if you let it control you one time, it'll control you for all time. Yeah. So it's it's telling him basically like, run, we made a fucking mistake. Um, and, And Mike and Chris are now in full on rebellion mode. They're just like, fuck this thing. I'm killing myself out of an act of, um, an act of rebellion right like well yeah they try to they try to solve the loop because mike is convinced that he can and chris is convinced that he can't and like you don't hear chris inside like what do you do chris is just like yeah i guess we're burning the shit down again i and also they they basically say like you get numb to the suicide part but you don't get numb to the monster killing you um yeah but yeah there's also like there's also a lot of like certain people's bubbles are Bubs, as I call them, um, are more uh, hellish, and certain people's uh, bubbles, or I guess one group's bubble, is actually pretty good. It, it calls into question, like, was the fact that the cult was showing respect for God, is that why they were given a more like amenable sort of situation? And like when they reset, they're all just kind of still young and beautiful, and like, or was this just a fluke? Was this just a weird? You know, they all just happen to have a really good setup and they happen to be in the right time at the right place. Because Tim, Tim also does this thing where he's like, he's playing down the religious stuff when they first arrive. Like, he talks about the struggle and he says, oh, it's just a silly metaphor. Like, no, no, if that's not a trick, <laughs> if that's not a trick that you guys are pulling on me, that's proof of God right there. Like, there's the, Tim seems to be pretty comfortable as the sort of not leader leader. Um, you mean which, how, right? Sorry, what? Isn't his name Hal? Oh, maybe. Tim is the beer guy. So, yeah. yeah. Um, so there's also this thing with like Hal is the, the the cult leader. I think I was saying Tim earlier, um, who, who who sort of like uh, downplays his leadership and also downplays the cults. But like, I get the sense that they're all like pretty happy right now. But maybe, you know, three, four loops from now, they're all going to be fucking driving each other crazy. Yeah, I do. Well, there's a couple things that is pretty heavily implied. The reason that their bubble is 10 years, we don't see another bubble that approaches that, right? Like, we see five second and hours and a week bubble. Week is the other long one. And then there's this rather large 10 year bubble. And the implication is they got 10 years at some point because they don't kill themselves. They don't prematurely end their stories. Every 10 years, they suffer this amazingly excruciating pain 
at the behest of God that wants that to happen at the end. Like the implication is God's ideal ending is that he kills you through this gruesome process. And the the part that God, even a Lovecraftian powerful God struggles with is that even if I control people in my loops to repeat my stories, they can prematurely end the stories. And this group's agreement is that they won't do that. And I, so I think that explains why they get the time. It also explains why they get. More they just happen to be playing by the gods' one rule. <laughs> yeah, like, um, but you know, there's a lot of implication of a history. So one thing, Tim, who is the old, the only older person at the, the, he has a locked cabin that they eventually discover and show all these tapes, and the tapes go back like to and include these people to the 30s, film strips and photographs to the 20s and the 1800s. So you get the sense that, like, Anna and Hal and Tim haven't necessarily just been around for, like, like their last ascension that we've been thinking, like, that they did the Heaven's Gate thing at the the 10 years ago, which is how this whole thing started from Justin Aaron's perspective. But actually, a lot of them, or at least some of them, have been going through this 10-year loop for who knows how long, because at some point, I'm assuming that the uh, god was throwing out, like, fucking charcoal paintings and shit because the media to communicate didn't didn't quite exist. I, I, I just realized something. They're all in polyamorous relationships, and they all seem very chill with that. Do you think that's just the nature from being in this loop for so long? Yeah. That, like, they, like, obviously, like, people are very happy in polyamorous relationships. Like, that's not, that's, I'm not saying you need a sci-fi setup to do that. I'm just saying, like, do you people think that People are that only happy <laughs> if... There's a Lovecraftian elder god who makes meeting new people kind of impossible. So then they all of a sudden they become like a, a, a small high school class where they just all start dating each other because there's no options outside the bubble. Well, yeah, because even if you get one person in and you do want to add new blood to your probably your 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 situation, you can't be like, oh, sorry, we're all taken eight times over. Yeah. You gotta be like, sure, we'll all date you. I, it's like my favorite part in palm springs when andy sandberg is like well i mean i don't know that guy's kind of hot why not try gay sex oh, yeah. <laughs> and he's not judgmental about it it's not a gay panic joke he's just like let's give it a shot and like, i'm living i've lived in eternity like why wouldn't i uh try out all my options in this yeah you don't know if that was like that was like you know run number 10 or if that was run number <laughs> ten thousand. but like you know he gave it a shot uh, so eventually Justin and or Justin makes his way back and runs into Aaron, who's trying to find Justin. Um, and that's when they kind of discuss, like, all the things that are going on and what's going to happen. And obviously, Justin has a lot to share. Like, I've seen a lot of weird shit. Like, there's a lot of bad things going on. When they get back, to, when they finally make their way back to the camp, the ascensions happened for them. Right. So they're in the process of the, the closed loop. But I, I really like this part. On their way back, they have a long discussion of, like why even after Justin says, here's what's going on, like he doesn't say they're in time loops, but he he describes everything that's going on and Aaron's kind of like, I don't care. And this is something that a lot of good, Groundhog Day gets this really right, like the routine of existence is a routine. Groundhog Day is not just a time loop that Phil Connors or the endless people are experiencing. My my life is a daily time loop with long term incremental changes. Uh, that is important. Like I get up, uh, and this is you know as we said uh, with some other movies this month, 
in in quarantine that becomes even more true but even before quarantine like i get up most mornings and i you know i get ready for work i get this stuff for my kids i take lunch breaks i you know i would come home or i'm done with work we have dinner we you know with my kids we read we do this like there's there's um uh, permutations in like what book I'm reading, what movie we're watching before quarantine, where we're going for a kid activity. But the general framework stays relatively the same. And even if I was legitimately repeating the same day over and over, I could still change those things in like tiny fashion, right? What ends up happening in a loop and why it gets generally frustrating for, for most of our protagonists in these types of movies, which makes sense to kind of talk about as we end our second Uh, Groundhog Day month is that eventually while it seems like their superpowers involved or the immortality aspect is good even though our daily um, routine stays consistent on a long enough timeline you start to notice that the long-term changes and those not occurring starts to have a bigger impact on you and you start recognizing that like that kind of idea of yeah right now my days with my two-year-old are the same and then eventually my days with my three-year-old are going to be somewhat the same and eventually the days with my four-year-old are going to be the same but at some point it's going to be like oh shit um my daughter is this age how where did the time go it's that that saying um you know the days are uh, the days are long, but the years are short. Like, and what just what Aaron is saying is that in the he recognizes that in the last ten years he sees all that he sees why a time loop would be ultimately frustrating and why it would be unsatisfactorily. But in the ten years that he experienced, those two things that make up theoretically a more satisfying life outside of a time loop, which is status quo changes and general growth. Uh, over a long timeline didn't occur for him he spent 10 years essentially living the same miserable day over and over and when he looks back on those 10 years there was nothing that changed the status quo from the same miserableness and the same feelings of what is he going to spend his day on that he did 10 years ago and when he looks back he sees a wasted 10 years as opposed to um as opposed to like something to mark an element of growth he still is in a little bit of a case of arrested development which shows by one of the opening scenes where as a someone who's approaching his 30s or whatever he's him and his brother are giving each other haircuts and he does a goof of shaving his head down the middle to leave a reverse mohawk and it's like dude we have to go to work we have to meet like that wouldn't be funny if your 10-year-old brother did it. The fact that, like, at least that's a change that will last beyond today, even if he has to fix it, is, like, something worth it to Aaron to remark change. So I think that's, uh, you know, as we talk about time loops and this movie comes to an end and this month comes to an end, I think it is interesting that, that like, Aaron as a character sees the pros and the cons of time loops because he has the choice to enter one. And in that moment, he says, I've seen reality as it exists without a time loop. And I've seen reality with a time loop with people I care about, things I enjoy. And honestly, knowing both of those realities, I'm choosing the time loop. 
Yeah, yeah, you're you're uh, you're spot on, and like that is that is why I feel like it's important to cover this movie right now. I'm really glad it also we got to cover it within spitting distance of Lovecraft Month because it's it's a uh, movies we wanted to cover for Lovecraft Month as well. But ultimately, the point of the two movies is is uh, that this time loop thing, this this sort of unchangeable system, like it, it, it's it's not sustainable for developing human mind. It's not sustainable for happiness that we need change. We need chaos. We need something to throw throw a wrench in there. Otherwise, like we stagnate, we get frustrated. We feel like we're in a prison of our own creating. And uh, so they make that same decision. Um, they, and they, uh, the, the callback to the battery happens, they get in their car and well, they see, they come back, everyone's dead. And as they're like, oh shit, I guess they're already gone. And Justin's like, well, they'll be back. They're, they're, they're fine. That's when the camera does its same pan resolution where it goes up high. And then all of a sudden Aaron is seeing the cost in some way that like is ineffable from a description standpoint, but clearly communicates the torture that everyone's been talking about in a single moment and is like, oh, the cost to break out of my reality loop is not worth it. Yeah. So he just decides to uh, he decides to leave. They get in the car. They they bounce. They uh, and the the battery is dead. So they have to have this very powerful moment where they're pushing their car to try and get it up to speed so that the uh, transmission can catch. And uh, they uh, they get the transmission to catch. They're staring at what is the edge of the bubble at the edge of the dome (laughs) and birds are flying into it and just bouncing off and a chaos is swirling around them because they can now see the the creature the creature has now revealed itself in whatever manner is necessary and uh, a hurricane is developing in this this land of wipe the land clean and do a full reset and um they they manage to make it through the bubble and the movie ends with a closure to that quote at the beginning which is essentially um you know, uh, Aaron says, uh, oh, we're low on gas. And Justin's like, also Aaron's driving. And Justin usually drives. Um, Aaron says, uh, you know, we're low on gas. We're, uh, you know, like, um, but we've got, you know, the, it's not actually empty. It, empty means there's still 25 miles in the tank or whatever. And Justin's about to tell him, like, no, we need to put fucking. And then he's just like, yeah, you know what? You got this. And he puts his head back and sort of relaxes. And it's like a beautiful way to end this movie because like. You are reminded of the fact that they had something, a really good relationship at the beginning. It just was, it was just uh, sick. Um, yeah. And now they have not just a, 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 um, a healthier, more developed relationship, but also it seems like the they have a bit more of um, a reason to live. Like they've, they've got a new lease on life. Um, so in that way, like Resolution is like the indie, more edgy movie and Endless is more of like the tr- more traditional movie. Um, with a more traditional sort of delivery. You made a point at the beginning of this that everyone kind of got what they wanted. I mean, there's people in this that, that didn't, but like the main cast all got what they wanted at the end, which is like they got to they got to see what it was like to start their life all over again and and uh you not start their whole life but you know start this beautiful port this beautiful chapter of their life all over again but with this this new understanding and like you know we'll, we'll you know t- only time can tell uh, whether that was a horrific hellish mistake or if uh 
you know, uh, life was really the answer. Yeah, I think I think that's a good place to end it. These are good movies. Uh, I would recommend wholly watching them back to back. Yeah, it was a great like whatever great two, experience. Two, two hour plus block. It was amazing. Yeah, I watched it. I uh, ended up watching them both in the same night, just from a timing perspective. And I'm really glad I did because, like, I I felt like Peter, you and I talked about this. I think our star ratings for both went up, and we were already big fans of the Endless. And I think I had a lot of appreciation for Resolution. My my opinion on both really uh, raised, and I can't imagine a situation in the future where I wouldn't think of these as watching Resolution and watching. And I'll have time to do that once I'm in my time loop. Yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah, so that's the end of Time Loop Month again. Uh, these these are such fun movies to talk about. I'm really excited where we're going in March. March is uh, we've been stuck in quarantine. Everyone needs an emotional catharsis. We're doing Who Needs a Hug Month, which is movies that are leave you with a sense of faith in humanity but also give you a couple good cries with uh, uh, while we already did It's a Wonderful Life. That's probably the template movie that we were thinking of as we created this month. However, we should have done more from just creating a template by doing a little bit of research of what your co-host thinks of movies. <laughs> because next work we're doing next week, we're doing Field of Dreams, a movie uh, with guest Rick Kelly. A movie that neither Rick nor Peter likes too much. Uh, but I, I think it was a really good episode. And I think I proved that not you guys wrong, because that's not possible with movies, but that I feel things when I watch that movies and you guys don't. <laughs> um, then we're doing Brigsby Bear with Brendan Lede, uh, one of our favorite movies for the last few years. And uh, Hunt for the Wilder People with Lydia Lamalley, another one of our favorite movies from the past. Some of this is just like, uh, hey, you know movies we talked about on the best of in 2015, 2016, 2017? Let's do whole episodes on those. Uh, and then we're wrapping up the month with Andrew Bloom and Inside Out, my favorite Pixar movie of all time. And also a movie I learned when we talked about Field of Dreams that Peter doesn't like that much. But at least this time, I know Andrew Bloom likes it. So Peter... I know you like the middle two movies. You're going to be the odd man out. Yeah, I'll, I'll be. Um, I'll have the little, uh, the little guy inside me, insecurity bouncing around, voice which by I don't care about because I'm an Buster older from Arrested Development, probably. <laughs> yeah. Oh, you're totally a Buster. They're I'm trying a to kill baby Buster. <laughs> I'm a Job because um, I'm the oldest. But who does not garner much respect from his family as a whole, <laughs> mainly because I'm not a monster. And then you are definitely a buster. I'm baby buster, please. <laughs> you're, you're not Mr. Manager, I'll tell you that much. <laughs> uh, all right, well, with that, uh, holy shit, this is three and a half hours. So I'm just going to say uh, good night, I guess. Yeah, good night and good loops. <laughs> good loops. Move me.
much for listening to We Love to Watch. If you made it to the end, hopefully you liked what you heard today. And if you'd like to hear more, please go to patreon.com slash we love to watch. And if you can chip in a few bucks, that would really help us keep the lights on and keep us moving forward. Uh, it wasn't an implicit threat by Peter. He just didn't know how to say it. But either way, we'll continue to make more. But it would be helpful uh, as we explain to our loved ones where all our money is going, which is all on server space. Uh, <laughs> if you can't, <laughs> uh, if you don't have a few bucks to chip in, we totally understand and you want to support the show. We truly, absolutely would appreciate a uh, review on iTunes. I know every podcast says it, and it's because it really does help. And so every podcast wants that help. So please go leave us a positive review so that when people find this show organically, they hopefully want to tune in and listen. And thanks again for all of your listenership and support and time throughout the years. Uh, We really do appreciate you. Uh, With kisses and smooches, Peter and Aaron. (laughs) Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs>